We were introduced to Dennis through a friend and former guest on This Korean Life, Dr. Kessler. We knew Dennis was going to give a thrilling interview after reading about his book, which is titled Traveling Man, Across the Sahara and Beyond, Eight Countries, Two Continents, One Pair of Pants. The excerpt from Amazon goes like this. Dennis Feely is a 19-year-old teenager with a youthful dream to explore the world when he sets out with his brother John on an ill-advised but incredible adventure to the Sahara Desert and beyond. The year is 1977. It is long before the internet, cell phones, fax machines, or ATMs. But most of the world is a truly mysterious place when the young brothers meet up in London to travel across Western Europe before crossing the Mediterranean Sea and trekking across the Sahara Desert in Africa, all on $6 a day. Have a listen as Dennis details his travels, work experience, and other amazing anecdotes that make him a truly unique individual. You are now tuned into This Korean Life with your hosts, Brian and Nate. Welcome to another episode of This Korean Life, number 103, featuring Dennis Feely. Dennis has traveled to 55 countries, studied and played rugby at Oxford University. He hitchhiked across the Sahara Desert. He's a CEO of an international trade company, legislative correspondent for U.S. Congress, lecturer at a maximum security prison in the U.S., and one of the few Americans to travel behind the Iron Curtain. Ricky Nelson is about to catch a full Nelson from Busan's one and only traveling man. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks uh, to Danny Kessler for the introduction. Yeah, he's a good guy. Thanks and, for having me. Yeah, no doubt. And I think you're more than... Uh, he was worried he wasn't interesting enough or didn't have enough stories to come on. <laughs> I think we're going to be okay. I hope you have enough time to, to share them all with us. Oh, sure. Sure I do. Awesome. Yep. Starting off, I think... Yeah, why don't uh, why don't you give us a, a little background how you ended up in in Busan of all places? Well, it was kind of by uh, a little bit by chance. I had lived in England for study, for university, did a lot of traveling for three years during my school days. Mm. Then I moved back to America to George uh, Washington University, graduated there, and then worked on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for a few years. Very cool. Then I started a business, uh, international trade company, which is a little money, but we eventually raised over a million dollars in private capital. And got kind of successful at that and then when that business was coming to a close i wanted to uh live overseas again sure i'd been to asia but i'd never lived in asia so i wanted to come to asia yep. and just kind of by chance uh, a guy i knew had taught uh in korea and he had lived in korea for a few years and talked about it's a great place to stay you yeah. just try it so i came to korea just i sold my uh my motorcycle, my car, closed my apartment, and just came to uh, Seoul yeah. just one day and then ended up staying here for a long what time. What year was this? Wow, that's a long time ago. Uh, maybe uh, 97, 98. Okay, oh, when I was you came say, here? When I first came, yeah. yeah. Oh, you, wow, you were here a long time ago. I left, ago. but I, I came, originally came at that time. Cool. Wow. Very that cool. would have been the real wild, wild west. Yeah, it was. Quite a bit different than nowadays. Were you in Busan? At that well, point? I was in Seoul for one year. Worked hard, saved a lot of money. Then I took off and just went traveling through Asia for like 120 days, about 10 countries. Uh, that's uh, hilarious. That's so many people. So many people follow that almost exact same <laughs> yeah. path. A friend told me about Korea. I came here, saved came money alarm. for a year, yeah, and started uh, and started traveling around. That's awesome. You were here for how long the first time? Well, I was here for uh, a lot of years. 15 years. 
Oh, wow. So you say so you saved money, went traveling, came back? Well, I just traveled for like 120 days. Okay, so just... Mm. Came back around the money, so I came back to Pusan. Uh, Also, kind of by chance, a Korean guy knew we came down to Pusan for a weekend. And uh, (laughs) I think I'll stay. (laughs) And then I got a job, ended up staying in the... Sure. That's awesome. So, and, and then, again, recently you left to go back to the States? And yeah, after I published my book, shortly after I published my book, I returned to the States for maybe four years, four or five years, so I was back home. Mm. I bought a house back there, and then uh, uh, after that I returned back to Korea again to Busan mm. and started working in Busan again. So what, around what year did you move home? Maybe 2000, uh 2012, maybe. And what was the the impetus for that? Just to promote my book, uh, I published the book, so I want to go back and promote it. Buying a house is a big commitment for public or promoting a book. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but it was after 2000. I got to buy a house. Why I got to promote my book? <laughs> we bought it at a really good time. We got lucky with the uh, market because it was during the uh, basically market collapse. Yeah, sure. And all, every house we went, we looked at 34 houses, 35 houses. My wife and I, and almost all of them were. Uh, had been foreclosed. Foreclosures, yeah. And we just picked one house we really liked. It was just, just being developed and being repaired. And we knew the guy really didn't have the money to finish it. Right. So I mean, he had a price for the house. I offered about 50% of what he was asking. And he said no. Right. And I just walked away. I came back to Korea, went back to work. Didn't contact him for like six or nine months because I knew he wasn't going to sell it. Yeah. There were so many houses for foreclosed right. that yeah. time. And then I recontacted him out of the blue maybe nine months later and gave him a, just a little bit higher offer, and he jumped right on it. So good. Beautiful. Wow. So we got the house at a really Jackpot. low price. Cool. And, oh, uh, good. We did a lot of developing, renovating. My wife's really good with the uh, interior design. So Nice. Oh, cool. Then you just couldn't uh, stay away from Korea too long or what? Yeah, it was just uh, I, I finished most of the promotions for the book and uh, uh, just came back to Korea. Nice. Actually, too, my wife got sick. And so we had to come back, actually. Mm. We didn't have to move back. We had to come back for her care. Mm. After we came back, then we just, I just stayed, stayed on. I think that that's a, another reason why well, maybe a lot of Americans stay as well. The healthcare system here is yeah, probably a lot of... Yeah, I was very sick myself two years ago. Okay, Danny mentioned that, but yes. that didn't come up in your... Uh, no, I, I was in the hospital for six months. Yeah. Wow. I had 15 chemo treatments. I had six targeted chemo. I had three complete blood transfusions. Brain... To have tumors on both sides of the brain. Yeah. I didn't know this until recently. My wife finally told me. But when I first went in the hospital, I went to one hospital. They said they couldn't do anything for me. I stayed there like a week. They took me by ambulance to another hospital, a specialist. And the specialist did all these testing. And they said, uh, we can't do anything. He's got about two or three weeks. You should just take him home. I told my wife, take him home and you know keep keep him uh, rested and for his oh. you know final days. And my wife said, well, no, you got to do something. Yeah. And they said, well, that with the way the tumors were, if they did an operation, it would probably kill me. Yeah. If it didn't kill me, the chances of recovery are so small. Mm. So they refused to do it. No way. But my wife really saved my life. She just adamant, you must, yeah. you must do this, you must. If there's yeah. a five percent chance, do the operation. Sure. And then they said we need the money, and the money was just astronomical. So we had that house, which really saved us. Sweet. We could show that house as we own this house, we yeah, sell yeah. this house, well, you know. And then they continued, and then it was just a really slow, long process. Mm. I had three bone marrow transplants, the most painful thing I've experienced. I spent like 20, 26 days in a bio clean room 
which I had in, to in call. A, in a what? It's a bio-clean room, which is just... So just completely sealed. Completely sealed. Like where they would have put corona patients maybe early? Oh, way in. more worse than corona patients. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Where, so, early, I mean early on corona patients, where you're just, you're oh, in a sealed room. Yeah, sealed it was room, just... Man. And uh, I had to qualify to get in there. Because I had to meet all these standards, my liver function, my heart function, my the chemo treatments. I had to get all these key points yeah. before I could qualify to go there. Mm. And when I first went in the hospital, there were six guys in my, my ward, the area mm. I was in. You know, By the time, this is after five, six months, I finally qualified for the bioclean room. Mm. There was one other guy, a real nice guy. He made it to that point. Mm. And then we both went in the same time, got released, and he passed away. Two oh, weeks later, wow. every guy in my room, there were six guys, have all passed. <laughs> oh, wow. Every one of them over, over a period of time. But I had really good care of the Korean system. I mean, it was just a... Uh, what, sorry, what hospital were you at? I was at PNU, mm-hmm. PNU Hospital. The one you. in... Busan? No, but... Near Napadong. Okay. Yeah, near Napadong. It's a... Wow. They're specialists, I guess, with brains. Sure. Brain, so... Wow. They did a great job, though. They were really... But just but nobody fear. nobody expected me to survive. Sure, nobody. what a what a great time to not understand or speak Korean. <laughs> <laughs> what a great thing to not hear from a doctor. That's kind of true. Holy. Yeah, because I, I was out of it for like a good five weeks. Mm. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't stand. I couldn't really talk. I didn't recognize my wife. I kept mm. calling her Nancy. Mm. I didn't know where I lived. <laughs> and they always asked me. It's a great name. Where do you live? Nancy. That's your wife's name. Uh, I don't know. And then finally, after five weeks, yeah. when they did a targeted chemo treatment, yeah. my wife said that's the first time I showed any kind of uh, change. I started recognizing a little bit. Yeah. What were your symptoms before? Like, what made you check originally? Well, I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't really uh, know what to go in. One thing I, re- I recall before I got sick was my eyesight, so I started seeing little black black spots mm. in my eyesight. But I didn't feel that different. And then, but some of my friends told me I was different. Mm. I didn't know this until way after, that I was acting different, that I didn't understand some things. And what happened is I was in my office doing some work, and they have video of me going into the office, and I left the office with all my students' papers, mm. like a big stack of papers, and I disappeared. Mm. And nobody could find me for like three days, three nights. So my wife had just gone back to America the day before, uh. and she gets a call, your husband's missing him, we can't find yeah. him, the police are looking for him. The university sent people to my apartment, they knocked, broke the door down, mm. they thought I might be unconscious in the apartments, sure. I wasn't there. And then finally, I turned up. a Hollywood movie. Yeah, yeah. it was. <laughs> Holy man. I was just at Paradise Casino. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was hot in the craps table. <laughs> I was going, so I had to run it out. <laughs> was it where, where, where did they end up They found you? me near... Uh, Texas Street. <laughs> actually, not that far. Pusan Station area. Oh, okay, okay. And I, they don't know how I got there. Yeah. I don't know how I got there. I have no memory of anything. Wild. But they told me what it, what it was. I was in a little convenience store. I was trying to eat some of the donuts. Hmm. They said there was this... Very well dressed, but kind of dirty, polite foreigner trying to steal some donuts. Yeah. So they called the police. The police came, yeah. and they talked to me. And they found out my name was in the system as being missing, oh. and they took me to the hospital. Was handing out handing out student papers at the Seven <laughs> yeah. Eleven. Ah, interesting. So as a, wow. but I have about six weeks. I have no memory of anything. Wild, completely blacked out. So you went from leaving your office. To being diagnosed with two brain tumors that they said are inoperable. Inoperable, can't do anything. 
just take him home. Wow. And then my wife convinced them to so do the So she must operation. have flew back right away then? Oh, she flew back right away, yeah. No. As soon as she found out I was missing. She what? Thank God for Nancy. What is the... <laughs> she was wonderful. My wife was wonderful. Absolutely. What is... Uh, what's the hesitate? Like, isn't that the doctor's job to provide you with the options? And why do you have to be so adamant? I'm not, I'm not asking... I mean, I think I, in Korea, I think you have to be. But even in Canada, I think you have to be now. If you don't say it really, really hurts or it's really bad, take a look. You're like, ah, you'll be okay. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. Boom. I think it's kind of true. You're not okay. Mm-hmm. My wife is always telling me, Dennis, tell me you're sick. Tell me you feel bad. Yeah. And I, I have the mentality from my traveling days, you never complain. Right. From playing rugby, I played rugby for two years in, at Oxford. Yeah. I, you never yeah, complain. Sure. So true. it hurt. I don't talk about being hurt. And my wife would tell me the doctors come around every morning about six in the morning. To my main doctor, three or four of the doctors and the nurses. And they'd not just me, but all the different patients and giving you updates for the day. And they'd always ask, do you have any questions? No, I'm good. No. How you no. doing? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Finally, the doctor got angry. What's for lunch? And I didn't know what happened to me until like weeks, weeks later. <laughs> I never knew how sick I was. Wow. Which is kind of good in a way. Absolutely. I never felt any stress. I just had this mentality, okay, I got today, I got an MRI, or today I got a blood transfusion i gotta do the best thing i can for that that process wow. that treatment today. just get through today i always wonder too like similar to your situation people who get diagnosed very late stages mm. and then the doctors like they're kind of fine until then and then the doctor goes oh my god you got stage four cancer and then they just go yeah and i wonder how much of the mental i think side of that play plays into Lots. it yeah. pretty big 100 percent. they might have went another six months or something but no, I think it's very the true. doctor says, uh, you know, you got stage four. Oh, suddenly, suddenly it's, it just it pounds you. It. It. Yeah. I just never allowed myself to do that. Yeah. So you were six months in the hospital? Yeah, six months. They let me out mm-hmm. one time, I think, for about two days, two nights. Otherwise, it's in there every day. Wow. These poor nurses, they did a really nice job. <laughs> they come in the morning to stick me for my IVs, my yeah. shots, and they couldn't find the vein. Uh-oh. My pulse was so low, I didn't realize but they try one. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dennis. They do the other. One. Oh. So they stick like four or five times yeah. to get one one transfusion going. Wow. And they felt so bad about it, but they were yeah. they were really 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 good care. They yeah. got here. So what are what are what are some of your main memories or takeaways from that experience? I mean, was it just all painful and, and bleak and dark, or is it? No, well, like kind of what you said is just attitude. I think made a big difference. I also believe in the power of prayer. Mm. I know a lot of people pray for me. I believe in that power. And then also just my attitude was just, I'm going to get through this. I don't really want to know how bad I am. I don't want to know how <laughs> yeah, sick I am. Sure. Yeah. And the first time I even knew it was possibly fatal was after I was in the hospital about three months. Mm. And the doctor started talking about, we're going to put you in this program to try to get you into the bioclean room. Yeah. I said, well, what's the bioclean room? Why do I need to go there? And he said, well, increase your survival. Oh, that's, that's, f- a, that's a hard word. That's to, the first time I ever thought about what I have could kill me. Yeah. I just never considered that sure. up until that point. But even then, I just kind of put it on my mind. Just focused on today. What's today? And what was, the, what was the, the final diagnosis? Like what? Well, I have cancer, you know, and I had, they did the operation on the, the brain and uh, was successful. But it's a long recovery. My first, first achievement was in my bed in the, the room with the six other guys. There's a little bathroom in the corner. Getting from my bed to the bathroom hmm. without falling down uh, was my biggest achievement. That's me like four weeks, five weeks oh, wow. to be able to get out of my bed, stand up st- without falling, and walk five meters to the bathroom. But then I'd get in the bathroom and I couldn't get out. You didn't know what to do? <laughs> no, I'd sit down. Oh. And I didn't have not have enough strength to stand up. Uh, Literally, I'd be in there for 20, 30 minutes just 
It's from the chemo? Yeah, chemo. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, really drains you, yeah? Drains you. And then also, I wasn't doing an exercise. I couldn't, mm. couldn't get out of bed for months. Yeah. First, I started walking down the hallway after I got to the bathroom. I had to walk a little further. and Just a long process. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Wow. wow. Were you... Uh, were, did you believe in the power of prayer before? Your, yeah, I, yeah, I was raised Catholic. I went to you know Catholic school, and I was an altar boy and all that when I was young. Cool. I wasn't like an active, active uh, person, okay. but just I was kind of always believing. From my traveling days, I have all these obstacles. You know, just you got to get through this. Sure. And my my brother and I, my brother traveled a lot too. He's been to like seventy countries, and uh, our, our attitude was just you do what you got to do. Hmm. You have an obstacle, something comes up. Okay, you make the best decision you can at the time. Yeah. Maybe it's not a perfect decision, and then you do it. Mm. You don't whine about it. Don't complain about it. Just do it. You do what you got to do. I think you'd fit in over here. <laughs> I think you'd fit in over here, Wilson. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny until you you encounter some of those desperate maybe situations or or what seem to be desperate or scary situations. All of a sudden, you know, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Oh, please, somebody, yeah. somebody listen, somebody watch, somebody help me. Yeah. I always wonder about atheists, like the hardcore atheists on their deathbed, if they're, you know, in the last minutes, last they're minutes like, oh, <laughs> I knew it all along. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, so your, your travel started back in 77 when you were in school, correct? Yeah, basically, hmm. uh, my first world trip was when I was 16 in high school. Hmm. My brother and I, for the summer, we took like a two months. My parents let us drive across America from Michigan to California, down to Mexico, back up to California, back to Michigan. I was on the road for like two months on my own with wow. my brother. And that kind of lit the fire that I wanted to travel. Yeah. So when I finished high school, when I was 18, I found this program to go overseas and study in England. Mm. And my plan was to go one year, do some traveling, but I ended up going three years, yep. did a lot of traveling, then came back. <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you went at 15, 16, was that like dine and dashing at uh, restaurants? Or what, how, well, how, what was funding that trip? Well, my own money... And actually, I traveled thirty over thirty countries before I was twenty-one years old, yeah. all over the world: Africa, yeah. Middle East, uh, Europe. And I paid for every dime myself. Awesome. My parents paid for my tuition. Yeah. You know, I had really wonderful parents, but everything I did for travel-wise, I paid for it. Awesome. And basically, after high school, when I went to university, it was one restaurant in my hometown where I grew up. I, I worked there in high school. I'd go to university, go to Oxford. I also went to Harlexton, study, study, study. Semester to finish, I just take off somewhere and travel. Yeah. I traveled really cheaply, yeah. really cheaply, and then I run out of money. I fl fly back home to Michigan. I could fly standby at that time. Uh, Thank God for Sir Freddie Laker. Yeah, yeah. started standby flights. So I could fly 115 bucks across the Atlantic. Awesome. I'd get home and I just went to work at mm -hmm. that restaurant, and they let me work as many hours as I wanted to. I'd be in America maybe 22 days. I worked 70, 80 hours every week, save my money, then <laughs> nice. go back to school, study, travel, work, study, travel. Fantastic. So I try to encourage my uni students to, to get on board with this kind of program because that's kind of what mine was like. Hmm. And uh, they just... They just don't get it. I understand. Too, too attached to the phones. I'm like, there's such a big world out there to explore. Yeah, and that's very once true. Once you go once and get that travel bug and feel that independence, and you, you'll be proud of yourself for going and you know getting out of your parents' house. And you, I guarantee you won't want to stop. Most people get hooked. I'm not saying all backpacking or, or budget traveling, but you'll figure out what works for you. Yeah. You meet some people, and you might have some scary or bad experiences, but. You you understand that it's it's different than the mundane daily life yeah. that you're used to, and Very next true. next vacation you're gonna go, 
oh man, I, I want to go again. Maybe I should get a job and not study so much because I want to go again and I yeah. value that experience. Yeah. But until you go, it's it's so hard to convince these guys. And, and I just asked uh, Fertesbeck, one of my Uzbek students, mm. he just graduated and uh, he just went for two months. Yeah. And he was posting on Instagram and I was like, this guy's on the trip of a lifetime. And, and I have a bunch of Uzbek students and, and they, they, the mentality is kind of saying, oh, it's hard to get a visa for me. For my country, it's too hard. Yeah. I don't have enough money. And I said, listen, you had an amazing trip. Would you be willing to come back and talk to a group of my students? Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll put a huge group of students together. You come back and tell them, listen, you can do it. Yes. I'm the same as you. Work your ass off. Study hard. Mm -hmm. You know, represent make your family and your country whatever proud don't don't be lazy and then when you get the time go and do it do it and now he's like man he was in bali and, and all over indonesia and trying surfing and yeah yeah and then thailand and philippines and singapore and i was like wow this guy's never gonna have the same life because of that trip sure, sure. Mm -hmm. i tell my students too is you, you just gotta take that first step yeah like when i came back from my travels i talked to my friends people i knew and they're like oh that sounds great i, I want to travel someday do it. Very few of them ever did. Yeah. <laughs> I tell them, you take that first step, and that, it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to have all the money you need. You're not going to have everything planned out like you do. That's part you, of the experience. Yeah, you take yeah, the step, yeah. and you go from there. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I think there's so many different levels to it where I say, hey, you don't have to go to Africa first. Go to Europe. Yeah, true. And, true. and maybe if you're really worried, okay, go to Italy, France, Germany, England. Mm -hmm. But if you're a little adventurous, maybe try a little bit of Eastern Europe. And then, you know, it's still fairly comfortable, safe. Mm -hmm. and, and then you can get more adventures. You don't have to go to Asia or Africa right away. But yeah, true. there's many different kinds of travel. And I, I really believe that there's something out there for everyone. Uh, they hear some sort of like, I don't like rats and cockroaches. And like, well, you don't have to. That was just the way I did it. But mm -hmm. You don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite travel life genesis stories. Do you remember Luke, the photographer? McDonald's. Yeah. He... Uh, he said, I think he was grade six, grade six, grade seven at home. Yeah. His parents one day just came up and said, hey, you're going to France for the summer. And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm playing video games with my friends. Yeah. And he said they, his parents dragged him, dragged kicking, kicking and screaming yeah. to the airport, threw him on. He said he was like a, like a miserable dickhead. He said for the first two weeks of his home stay, he's like, well, this is bullshit. Yeah. And then came back, he said, now he's like a, a travel photographer. Yeah. He said, totally set the course for his life. He could never thank his parents enough for that. Yeah, has a big, can have a big influence. Absolutely. Right, right, those formative years. Yeah. And even back to your first trip, I think those are also instrumental. Like, my parents would bring us to uh, Wisconsin Dells. Not yeah. Too far from where you are. And, I mean, Minnesota, I'm from Thunder Bay, so Minnesota oh, yeah, is... Yeah. Very close. I mean, across the fence there. And uh, so we go to Minnesota and play hockey, all my brothers and sisters. But that those early days of traveling and road trips in Canada and America for hockey all over the place, mm -hmm. those instilled that sense of travel and yeah. mystery and adventure. And, adventure. Yeah. and I mean, if you went at 16, I mean, that's a... Yeah, it just lit the fire for me. That I sounds like McAllister there going <laughs> on his trip. But what, where, what, where did you go after that? So after that one, that... Led you to England? Yeah, I went to that when I was 16, came back, finished high school. I was all set after high school to go to Michigan State University. I had a 
partial scholarship, but I found out about this program in England at Harlech's University, which is a beautiful place, international school. It's a big castle out in the country. Nice. So I applied there late, but they had a student drop out, so I got accepted. Beautiful. So I was only planning on it, so I went there, planned to go for a year, went to Harlech's, and it was just a wonderful experience. Did a lot of traveling during summer, winter breaks. And then I applied for a program at Oxford University, which I didn't expect to get accepted on, but I did it kind of a lark. Mm. So I applied there. Just before I was supposed to return back from Harlexton after mm. my year there, I got notification that I was accepted at Oxford. So I planned then to go back to Oxford for one year, yeah. but I'm going there for two years. So I lived for three years in England. Yeah. It's kind of like a second home to me. Wow. I had a lot of good memories of it. <clears throat> How cool is that, man? And when you went traveling after the semesters, that was usually solo missions, or were you going with friends or classmates? or Usually solo. My brother and I traveled together a couple big trips. Uh, we took a trip through uh, the Sahara Desert, Western Europe, and then the Sahara Desert for like 40 days on the road. We also, my brother and I had another trip behind the Iron Curtain, which very few Americans have done. This is at the height of the Cold War. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. We, we talked about this, and we thought, like, was he, like, sneaking into the in, in, into the Kremlin, or did he go to Turkey for lunch? What was the... <laughs> what was the... the <laughs> That's what my friends always say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, was, uh, what was the extent of, of going behind the Iron Curtain? What well, a- I traveled for, uh, for three weeks unaccompanied, no Communist Party official, no government minder, on our own, our own vehicle, which is unheard of back in the wow. day. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, was a fascinating trip, very tense at times. Sure. And I think people that live like in a free country, free like society, don't understand a total unfree society. Yeah. Just like I think people that live in a, a communist, hardcore communist society can't understand freedom. Sure. They can to a degree. I'll give you an example. When I was in Czechoslovakia, um, it's that night my brother and I were traveling with another third guy. Three of us were traveling through Eastern Europe. And we're up in the Tetra Mountains. And we go to this little hotel. We walk in. They ask for our passports. We show our passports, and it's an American passport. Wait, what are you doing so here? Everybody's shocked. <laughs> and they take our passports. We can't leave. So we're sitting in the hotel lobby. Yeah. All these people from the village start coming into the hotel. We just think it's by chance. Yeah. The hotel clerk, this really beautiful young woman, yeah. called everybody. Oh, there's Americans. There's Americans. So everybody came to the hotel to see us. Well, one guy that came to the hotel was this guy named Milo's. And he spoke quite good English. Nobody mm. spoke English. And he invited us to his bar. He had a little bar in this little town up in the mountains. Yeah. So he said, oh, come on, we'll talk. We'll have some drinks. We'll talk together. So he left this little hotel, and I could tell he was really nervous. Because yeah. he's with these, with these three foreigners. And they have Communist Party officials who monitor the village mm. to see what people are doing. He didn't want to be seen. So he took us to these back streets and so forth to his bar, took us in his back room, and we spent the whole night talking to him. Mm. And it was just a fascinating discussion. Sure. And, like, he, the only information he had about the West was on VOA, Voice of America. My mm. friend used to work on there. And he listened to Voice of America in his closet with a blanket over him so his wife did not know, his children did not know. Nobody knew he listened to Voice of America wow. because it's outlawed. Um, so he had a little information about the West. Wow. But I tried to convince him, oh, in America, I can go in front of the White House, stand on the street, and say, I don't like the president. He's a jerk. Yeah. He could not believe that. <laughs> yeah, really. After four or five hours of talking, yeah, you can't get sure. No, no, no. You know, you, something happens. You get arrested. You lose your job. It's only bad. No. And, uh, but it was a very, very interesting uh, trip. And the border crossings in Eastern Europe were really tense. 
Yeah, you'd have to show passport and oh, absolutely to get through there. And we have a visa, which is un- un- unheard of for an American to travel with a visa unaccompanied. Mm. So when we travel, we, we cross East Germany to Poland, two communist countries. Mm. And driving, exiting Poland, you got these big watchtowers with the spotlights and the machine guns and the soldiers and the dogs walking. We drive into the East Germany checkpoint to leave East Germany. So you pull up under these spotlights, the soldiers come, counterspart official comes, they take us out of the car, one, two, three, line up me, my friend, my brother. They go into the car and they start searching the car. We're there for like two or three hours. Oh my and God. It's really tense. You know they have complete and total control of you. Sure. Finally, they stamp our passports, let us exit East Germany. Now we drive across no man's land. It's about two, two miles just militarized to get to Poland. Now in Poland, it's the same deal, but even more tense. We drive into the Poland sector, and there's all the watchdogs (laughs) and the towers, and they pull our car up, they put it under a spotlight. Mm. A Communist Party official comes, stands next to us with two soldiers on both sides of us, just intimidation. Sure. Then four or five soldiers go into the car and start searching the car while we're watching. Well, one soldier in the back seat stands up and tweet, tweet, blows this whistle. Oh, my God. And all God. hell breaks loose. Oh a whole God. parade of soldiers come surround us like, you know, like we do a run somewhere. Where yeah. we go? And, and they check the car and they check. The, they put cables into the car. They put uh, mirrors, long yeah, mirrors yeah. And under the car. They had a, every piece of paper was identified that was in the car with the coffee receipt. They brought it out. Who's this? in front of us then they took each of us individually yeah. and searched us in a private room other area wow. which was real scary because at that time in the communist world I was in the Soviet Union prior to that mm. they told me this this is this gesture means you disappeared you're oh, just no. gone yeah. and nobody knows where you went what happened to you nobody asked about you you didn't exist mm. and that's what I thought what happened to us I was really worried about that the whole sure. ship was being taken and disappeared and so anyways we got into uh into Poland, made it through Poland, and then also to like in the, in those countries, the they control all your money. They want to control the black market. Okay. So every dollar, every euro, every French franc, everything we bring into the country is documented. And they want it accounted for. They Absolutely. want receipts and everything. Absolutely. Wow. So every time we spend money, it's got to be officially documented. You spent this money; that money's gone. Oh my god! Well, when we got to Poland, we traded black market on the street. Yeah. We made like 22 to 1. In other words, on the street, they'd pay us 22 yeah. times what yeah. the bank would pay us yeah. for the same money. Wow. So we did that. We really needed money, so we traded black market. <clears throat> but now our money's short. Mm. Money's missing. We have no document for it. We traded black market on the street. So now we know leaving Poland is going to be a big problem. Yeah. So we calculated all, all our money, how much money we had between the three of us. Between the three of us, we had enough money to show my money, my brother's money, third party. Yeah. So our great plan was when we go into the custom building, I'll have the money. I'll show the money first. When they pass it back to me, I'll hand the same money to my brother oh, under the table. And then they'll hand it to the third guy, to Ed. So we did that. I handed it to my brother. We got through that. Then my brother tried to hand it to the third guy, and the official saw him. Yeah. Grabbed his hand. What's that? What's this? Yeah. Now he knew he had us. Uh-oh. So then he sits back like a cop in the you know interrogation office. Just oh, we know he's got uh-huh. us. He knows he's got us. Yeah. And he says, "Okay, what do you have to declare?" 
nothing. <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Three times. Oh, what do you wow. have to declare? We bought all kinds of stuff when we were in Poland. We bought beautiful chess sets and vases yeah. and artwork. So our car is filled with <laughs> yeah. all these Polish goods we have no record of. But we can't declare it. A Polish chocolate melting in your front pocket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we say nothing. So the official says, okay, you. He points to me, takes me out of the office, the area where our car is, mm. with a spotlight, searchlight, starts searching the car. We open the trunk. And there's a beautiful vase. There's a painting. He says, what's this? I say, oh, a uh, gift. Italian. Polish friend gave a gift. No, no buy. Gift, gift. He knew he had us now for sure. black market. So now he takes us back into the custom building. But this time he takes us into a back private room oh, no. without the soldiers. So it's just the Communist Party official. Plastic all over the walls. And like, oh, no. yeah. my brother, you just got to give him some of that 22 to 1. Well, that's kind of what happened. My my one friend had two gold cross pens, yeah. which are like really expensive, like 110 bucks or something each, in his pocket. So the custom official is just like grilling us, you know. He looks at my friend's pocket. He pulls out a piece of paper, puts it on the desk, casually reaches over, takes one of the pens out of my friend's pocket, writes something, and puts the pen in his pocket. Oh, and he looks right. at us like, we're like, yeah, that's good. You keep that. You no, keep that. Uh, he took the second <laughs> pen. And that's what he took for his bribe. Yeah. And uh, Wild. that's how he got out. But I used to always keep cash for bribes. Sure. A uh, load it's, of cash. It's impossible. Or it's so Germany, terrible. Poland. East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia. Iron Curtain. And then I went to the Soviet Union a different, different time. And that was, you were there for how long? A couple months? No, I was behind Iron Curtain for about three weeks, three, four weeks. Wow. We were traveling. Soviet Union was like four or five, about five, six days. So... When, when you say like you were really scared and stuff, yeah, is is that? <laughs> I I think I kind of have some similar stories, but people say like, are you are you dumb? Like you knew that before you went. Why did you go? Is it the thrill seek? Is it the adrenaline that you know something crazy might happen? It, it's not. I mean, the guy who stole Otter one beer or whatever stole oh, Otter one beer. I think that's different. That's I think you know. Going to Afghanistan in the middle as an American during the maybe, but is it part of the thrill seeking? Is that what it is? Or I mean, you could you could have went to Italy. No, I mean, it's just <laughs> just uh, both my brother and I when we were young. It was just we saw the world was out there. And back yeah. then, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, there's yeah. no ATM money machines. But so it's much more of a mystery, you know. But I, there was news. There was news, but like the Soviet Union, I'd never seen anything behind the Iron Curtain hmm. except in that one movie, Rocky Four. Oh. He had a film where he's looking one <laughs> way down the street, another way. It showed a little bit of Moscow besides the normal, you know, Red Square things. Sure, yeah. yeah. And so it was just a, a big mystery. And for me, I just wanted to see the world. And we were just kind of a little stupid. So kind of naive. Fearless. But that's know. the same as that Otto Warm. I just went and did it. Wow. Right? He's eight, just graduated I, high school. It was yeah. 2019 or something. Come on. You know what to do and what you can't do, and I mean that's yeah. Oh no, of course. I mean, the, there's more information, but it's the age that's the problem, not the not the spread of information. And I was He's, always careful of where I was. Hmm. I see some people just like, well, I'm American. I got the same rights as I have in America. I can sure, do what I, want. Yeah. I was always very respectful, yeah. very polite, and very careful what I did and who I was around. Yeah, you know, and uh, in those in those kind of scary situations or, or being in. Um, you know, it, it being uh, how do you say? It? It's kind of like there's some higher baseline level of stress that that you're feeling. Do you learn to trust your gut more? Oh, absolutely. In that? Yeah, absolutely. 
Gut instinct was you, very important for me. Yeah. You mentioned in that first video on YouTube, yeah, or a second video, the situational awareness. Yes. Which <clears throat> I think a lot of young people don't have, and a lot of people who've never left their country don't have. I think it's true. Um, and <laughs> it's it's most obvious to me when I when I go on a trip. I just got back from five weeks in Central Asia with my kids and my wife. Yeah. Very different trip than the solo, <laughs> you know, backpacking missions and stuff. Yeah. But but I remember when I went to Philippines, I started a almost a two year Asian backpacking trip, and it was my second day in Philippines, and we had, we just had a big going away party here, and it was I was still like I was like half in Korea, and just starting to turn into yeah, the travel. backpack mode, yeah. and my camera was gone. I was like. Oh. Stupid! <laughs> I just—I was just still stuck in work mode, Korean yeah. mode yet. I didn't—I didn't turn it on. I didn't turn it on yet. Yeah. But then from that moment on, I probably caught like, in in two years, I probably caught twenty or thirty guys with their hands on my like. I mean, grab their hand before he's got my stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that situation. Listening to your thing, I just had so many, so many <laughs> situations. I'm like, oh man. And I don't know. I probably foiled a lot more that I don't even know I did just from being aware. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think having that is a real crucial skill or, or it is thing to have when you're, especially in the developing world Absolutely. Where, where you have no idea how things work and what's going on around you. And, you know, you don't know the language usually, you don't know the culture. No, it's different. I think if you're in France or Italy or, or maybe even Mexico, but, the further out you get from your comfort zone, you better have a lot of that because you get taken advantage I've seen of. I've some pretty crazy cool. ones on YouTube, man, where they got like a team of six dudes. One oh, comes and yeah. bumps you from the right. You turn around, <laughs> yeah, smacks in the back of the head, takes team's, your wallet. Whole team's got kids. That's kids, what happened yeah. to me Mothers, in the so. Philippines. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I felt oh. like such a... <laughs> I just didn't have my brain on yet. But, uh, wow, that's a, that's a wild trip. Do you feel... Uh, when you're when you're in a situation like that with the guards and stuff, yeah, is there kind of like a peaceful feeling as well, like a little bit of intimidated, a little bit scared? But the worst you can do is kill me. I'll be dead. Nobody knows. I mean, unless you're thinking of torture and stuff. But they don't they don't want that, right? They don't need that. It doesn't do anything for them. Um, after you've traveled a bit, you understand that a bribe in most of these countries can get you off, but. Like, I felt like just being able to surrender and say, hey, when, when I was traveling, I said, I got nothing. What do you want? Take you want my backpack. I got mm -hmm. one pair of pants. I got two pairs of shorts. Would mm -hmm. Take whatever you want. As long as I have my passport, I'll figure out the rest. Right. But I, I don't really have anything. So I don't know what you want from me. I don't even have dollars or is there, do you ever, did you have that kind of like no, feeling I of surrender where like. I'm worried, but we're okay because there's nothing. I kind of did as far as my possessions. Like back when I was traveling, the American passport went for big money in the black market. So I was always very careful with my passport, <laughs> yeah. people trying to steal that. Um, nowadays, it's cell phones, but my, my, my money and so forth. So I was always very, very careful and very, very aware. Um, but sometimes, when I, especially in the communist world, it was just a feeling of just being completely vulnerable. Hmm. You're totally vulnerable. You have no voice. I can't talk to anybody. Can't talk to a lawyer. Can't talk to family. Can't talk to anybody. I'm just alone in this whole big system. And if it, whether it was Poland or Soviet Union, it's a huge country. They got hundreds of thousands of soldiers. They got the military, blah, 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 blah. And it's me. Yeah. And that's a, just a, it's a very uh, 
uncomfortable feeling. Uncomfortable <laughs> sure. feeling. And that's what I felt like at the borders and the other situations. And mostly in the communist world. Like when I was, I was in Vietnam, when Vietnam just opened up, there were almost no foreigners, and I had an incident with a soldier. But I didn't have that same feeling of total vulnerability, hmm. which I had in the communist world. There's just nothing. I can Have you happened to go through Myanmar on your tours, travels? No, I haven't. Okay, so when I was in Myanmar, it was right before the uh, the civil war started, and they the, they overthrew Aung San Suu Kyi and put all the the monks in the Shredagon Pagoda and locked them up. That was that was a month after I left, oh, and right. I was like, holy shit! Yeah, time. Um, so when I was there, it was still very closed. Mm-hmm. Um, still had the trade embargoes with America. Um, no jeans, no Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. no fit. I mean, it was like a time warp to the 60s. Mm-hmm. And this would have been 2007, maybe. Yeah. Um, and and you felt like you went back to your grandpa's day, early days. Yeah, true. Um, and there was nothing. We had the minders. We had the minders follow us the whole trip. And the same thing, trading money on... The black market was, I think, 15 to 1. Mm. And you couldn't afford not to. But yeah. they wanted to see your transactions. But, you know, the the, the travel guides and stuff said, you can't. The government gives you nothing. You, you, you need to bring way too much money for stuff that costs nothing. So we traded on the black market. And I remember walking down the street. We asked, where do you, where's the best place? They said, go here, go here, turn left, right, go into this door. Walk into the door. And there's nothing there. It's a guy under a stairwell with a desk. And we were like, is this where we trade money? That's like Philippines when you're, you got to pay your going away tax. <laughs> Some oh, guy with yeah. a, Give me $100. <laughs> so, yeah, you have a great trip in the Philippines. Then you're on your way out and they're like, exit tax. Yeah. 50 bucks. You go, what a sour way to end my trip. Yeah. No, and I just spent all my last pesos on a massage or hair braiding for my kids. And now you, anyways. Um, so, so these guys, there's no ATMs. No. In the whole country when I went. Oh, I see. Uh, you, you couldn't exchange money anywhere outside of Yangon. Mm-hmm. So, but everybody goes north to Bagan and Mandalay and, yeah. but you can't, so you have to bring money for your whole time and you can't get a, you couldn't get a visa out of there. Uh, unless you left your passport for five days somewhere. Wow, so I so we, I, I, I was getting a visa to, to India, mm-hmm. but so they make it so you have to, and the flights only leave the day before you get your passport back. Wow. It's set up so you got to stay at least 10 days Just wait. because the flight out was only every five days to yeah. India and one to Thailand, and your passport had to be held for five days to get the visa from the Indian embassy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what a racket this is. Yeah. So I went in and we changed. I think it was with a, a Swedish couple, I think, and a British guy. And we changed, I don't know, 500 bucks each. 500 bucks was like 25 million chat. <laughs> and the whole backpack, like my whole little pack, was full of cash. Mm-hmm. And you walk out of there going, everybody knows that these four guys backpacks are full of money. money. <laughs> and I was like, this is another setup. Like, who's not going to mug us now? Uh, when tired. they know we went under the magic stairwell, the guy just opens a drawer <laughs> and starts loading money. Oh, oh my yeah. God. So yeah. a lot of those things, I mean, probably not as uh, severely regulated, but I, I felt a lot of that when I was in, in Myanmar. Yeah. 
Do you feel now, I mean, having lived here, being exposed to the media, there's lots of literature, now a lot of defectors out telling their stories. Do you, can you feel or, or sympathize or empathize with the people of North Korea and what it's like there? Oh, I think it's terrible for them. I'd hate to live in that system. I mean, I, I've heard stories about the, the leader there, uh, Kim, uh, wants to live forever. So he's taken like 100 doctors out across the country, just took them out of their, their profession, their normal work, and they got to work on some kind of life-saving to, symptom or medicine for they'll keep him alive forever <laughs> and it's like when i behind the comics world when i was traveling it's just you got no rights at all you got no voice so that, that's what i mean do Anybody. you think do you think that's stricter than what you experienced i mean not having experienced it but now we can read we can watch documentaries do you think that's a harder core version of what you experienced i think it's similar, similar or similar to what i what, what i experienced uh -huh. um the thing when i was young traveling though there was just no contact there was no internet. There was right. no cell phone. Mm -hmm. There was no ATM money machine. It's like you said, all my money I had for a year when I left for school mm -hmm. was in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> if I lost that money, I got robbed. I got mugged or conned. Toast. Yeah. Toast for the year. Mm -hmm. You know, and then the same with my parents. Like when I wrote my book, uh, Travel Man Across the Sahara and Beyond, my parents had no idea what I went through in my travels. They knew I traveled real, real cheaply, real ruggedly. But that trip, I took a 40-day trip from England all the way across Western Europe, Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, took a ship to Sicily, hitchhiked across Sicily, then snuck on a ship or stowaways across the Mediterranean Sea from T Sicily to Tunisia. Mm. And then we end up hitchhiking about 1,500 kilometers across the Sahara Desert. John, anybody's ever done that? On what, a camel? Oh, just whatever came by. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't much of a selection. Rattlesnake. Oh, but the thing was, they always stopped. They never saw foreigners, never saw Americans where I was oh. at. So the hitchhiking was actually some of the best I had. But uh, it was just an incredible, and there's just no contact. So my father read my book a few years ago when I published it, and he's like, Dennis. What the hell? I didn't know you were doing this. <laughs> yeah. He said, I'm glad I didn't know. I'd been way too worried. Sure. And I never, I never asked my parents for a dime when I was traveling. I never called home with a, a problem. Later on, when I got married, they helped me with different things. But, yeah. but my younger days, and just uh, they didn't know what continent I was in, let alone what country or city. <laughs> so my mother used to ask me, "Well, Dennis, when you travel, just send a postcard with a time, a date, and a place." Well, wow. I'm right now I'm in Turin, Italy. It's twelve o'clock on Thursday, September fifth. So we have some way of backtrack. Otherwise, they have no idea I'm out in the world somewhere. And and to compare to, I mean, parents today, I got a, I got a student I teach and. Uh, he comes home from school and I meet him there and his mom's at work but she'll check his location oh, on wow. the on yeah, the phone it's a different world now <laughs> how crazy well, I, I thought I thought I, yeah I, I mean I'm born in 1980 so traveling in 77 I can't relate to but uh, when I was working in in Ghana the village that I was living in there was only one telephone Oh. And it was like this call center, but the call center was like an outhouse, mm -hmm. and it was just one guy with a chair and a desk. I can relate and, to that. And a phone, <laughs> and it was. I don't know who they ever called because it never worked. Mm -hmm. But probably once every six weeks, someone would come running. Ma Dingo, Ma Dingo, your father is calling. <laughs> and my place was probably eight hundred meters from that phone booth. Yeah. Or, or phone station and they, the small boys would run down the street come and get me and say you have to come quickly your father is calling and I would I would sprint down there and they'd be like 
so sorry the call is lost and i was like oh shit yeah uh and then i i call back three times four times the number is 26 numbers long and you're like i don't this doesn't work and you just get frustrated and leave and once in a while you would get through i, I mean like out of 10 calls missed you mm -hmm. might get one to work and then i remember talking for five minutes one time and there was three people waiting outside mm -hmm. and the guy's like madingo <laughs> and i was like it's been five minutes. I haven't talked to my parents in two months. And I'm like, what? Do you, do you don't understand this? Yeah. You've been on for five minutes. He's like, they have to call very important. Yeah, Their yeah. calls are like eight seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be in Accra tomorrow, two o'clock. Have it ready. Done. And that's a business call. And these guys are waiting going, who's this guy taking 10 minutes on the phone? I, like, I love the efficiency. I was like, we guys, I'm going to be 30 minutes. So <laughs> go get a drink or something to mm -hmm. eat or whatever and come back. And they're like, no, 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 no. That's not, you can't mm -hmm. do that. But I used to think that was pretty, pretty wild, wild and weird, um, getting a ten minute call in every couple of months. Sure. But <laughs> I can't imagine, like, yeah, having no connection, no contact. No, like a trip across North Africa, I, I had no contact with my family. Wow. I tried to make an international call a few times, and that, at that time they'd have like a phone bank. You have to make a reservation like two days in advance, <laughs> yeah. at a certain time, and then the phone was service wasn't working, or maybe. If by some, which really happened, I never made a call actually through that. But uh, so the c communication was just completely different. Yeah. Now you can be anywhere in the world with your phone. You can get internet. You can get pictures. Yeah. Pictures where you are. You sure. You mentioned anybody. you mentioned earlier, and I mean this was my it's first cool. adventure trip since having kids. We did some relaxed Singapore, Philippines, Thailand stuff. Pretty easy going. But this was kind of backpacking for five weeks in Central Asia, and man. You just put in a SIM card, and I was like, I've never done this. I don't. I was researching before I left. Like, all you young guys use SIM cards. How does it work? Ask my international kids. What do you do? And like, it's so easy. And I was like, I don't know. I got to walk across the border, and there's like six kids there. Do you need SIM card, SIM card, SIM card? <laughs> I was like, yes. I don't know what it is or how it works. I know I should pay about this much. She goes, give me your passport. And I was like, mm, I don't know about that. What <laughs> yeah. are you going to do with it? They're just like, they look like homeless kids on the yeah. street. And she takes my passport. Puts in my number, plays with my phone for two minutes. She goes, "Okay, unlimited internet." And I was like, "Holy shit! Yeah, what a awesome. what a different world, man! Completely different." And I, I thought you mentioned before about people worried about getting their phones stolen stuff. I think it is a worry, but not nearly as much as it would have been five years ago. Maybe mm. everybody's got a phone. Yeah, everywhere you go, they got a phone. Everybody had a Everybody phone. Saw. The poorest places poorest in Kazakhstan, slums, Uzbekistan. Yeah. Yes. Everybody. That's the true. beggars. The beggars come up and say, oh, and I was like, QR code. You got gold earrings and a phone. <laughs> yeah. This is a different level of begging yeah, than I'm, totally I'm used to. So, wow, yeah, what a, what a different environment now. So, a question maybe for both of you guys. You're Nate's fresh back off a trip, but is there any tradition or practice from other countries that you wish existed here? Well, I kind of like in Korea is the respect for older people. Sure. You know, age. It's kind of changed so much since I've been here. Mm. But sometimes I feel like in America, you get older, it's just kind of like you're Forgotten useless, kind of suicide. I read some study about uh, elderly in America. Many of them never speak to a person in a week. In one week, they have maybe one conversation. Ah, I, saw the, I saw something like one that. Of the, one of the highest causes of death now is the loneliness yeah, crisis. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like that about here. Yeah. You know, Still a collective. Age is, is uh, respected. Uh, I like also education, but I think it's kind of like overkill. But education is very respected. Sure. And children are taught that, you know, to be diligent, you, you mm. study. I think in America, you have more freedoms and so forth. But sometimes education is kind of 
subside. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So those are a couple of things I. In the West, we've kind of gone to the other end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. It's just, it's just a free for all. Um, and if you don't have that, that upbringing, with some guidance and morals, values, some ethic, kind of standards, it's, you know? it's pretty hard, it's pretty easy to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah, I agree. Where, where here, they, you're st- there's still a lot of checks and balances to, to keep you on track. Mm. Which I mean, some of them we like, some of them we don't. But mm-hmm. any uh, any takeaways from any cultural practices you wish uh, from Kazakhstan or any uh, any big? Takeaways I think there's from? lots everywhere, right? That's why they say like, "What? So I'm a cherry picker. I just love picking all the goods out of all the places I've been and try to incorporate them into my life. They're, they're, even from the the devotion to praying. Mm. I mean, even if it's, I mean, Sunday church when I was young reminds me of Friday at the mosque. Mm-hmm. But now Sunday church has kind of like lost its luster. It's yes. just kind of the same. It's kind of, everything's kind of like relaxed. Yeah, relaxed version. Kind of light, 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 <laughs> a light version. Yeah, the, the family unit is a light version of family. The respect yeah. is a very light version. But yeah. in lots of these places, like I mean, the Friday mosque guys are coming in, and some some guys have like styrofoam mats. Like the Baskin Robbins ice cream bag, kind of like foil mat. Some of them have like Louis Vuitton mats, like carpets to pray yeah. on. Some of them have like traditional ones. But that brotherhood, that I don't know. I, there's just something that feels cool about it, that, mm-hmm. and I think, wow, it's a conservative values. We of, don't, we don't, we don't yeah, really have this. Just um, kind of set aside here. I, I think yeah. the independence is great, but I don't know if it's gone over. Like your time in in Africa, I'm sure you saw it as well. Like three, four, five-year-old kids taking care of one- and two-year-old siblings. Yeah. Because mom's got a newborn. There's also, too, the code they had there was, in like, in the desert and among a lot of Arabs I knew, is that if somebody asks you for assistance, you must help them. Right. Whatever it is. If it's somebody needs some water, they're lost, whatever it is, you must help them. When I traveled across the Sahara, like, 40 days, I was hitchhiking, so I had a lot of contact with people, and I found that the case... Anytime I asked for something, they'd bend over backward to make sure they accomplished. So much different than back home. I find, but I find that a lot in Korea. People will, you know. I remember guys when I was before I was married. Guys, I say, "Do you know where this is?" And they'd say, "Oh, come with me. Take you around and for for fifty meters. No, for two kilometers. Like, no, no, dude, you must have been going somewhere. Had something to do. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. No, no, no. I was like, man, it's hard to find this back home. Uh, One thing from the recent trip back to Islam and the Muslim countries is the the not wasting food. We were at a, a pretty fancy high-end restaurant in Bishkek with one of my old students and they were taking us out and treating us, but there was a pile of food left and I was like, you don't you don't go for a high-end meal at home and then bring out like six doggy bags or something of food. Oh, right. And there but there it's you don't waste anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing's wasted. And I think of Korea and I go Man, all those banchans every night. I still think Korea should have a checklist of which banchans you want and which ones you don't. Right. Because it, they're only 50 years out of having no food. Yeah. It's very How change. can we waste so much food here? It's it's incredible. Yeah. So, okay, I want to I want to hear about this Sahara, this trip across the Sahara. Um you mentioned being a stowaway on a ship from Sicily to where Tunis? Tunisia, Tunisia, yeah, Tunis, actually. Tunis. What what was that like? Um, uh, it was just kind of another world. You know, we'd been traveling kind of hard and fast across Western Europe. We'd, we hitchhiked. We had so little money. One, yeah, one thing you mentioned was $6 so, a day. So, that's true. And I, sorry, I didn't have enough time to read the book. He sent me the thing. I was like, yeah. want to meet this guy. want to talk to this guy. Mm. Can't get the book in Kazakhstan. <laughs> I'm not going to have time to read it, but I will. 6 bucks a day. Was that including in Europe? 
That includes everything. everywhere. Wow. We were okay. on the road for 40 days. Mm. We, 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 my, my brother and I, I had not seen him like for several months prior to this trip. I was going to school at, oh, at England. Oh, nice. So we planned, we'll meet up in London. Sweet. December, I forgot the date, December, platform five mm. at 5 p.m. <laughs> at King's Cross Station. Oh, my God. So I hadn't contacted, I didn't even know if he was This is 1977. Here. 77. For yeah. context. Con- no context. This wasn't you sent him a message on your phone oh, yesterday. <laughs> So I wow. show up at the train station. We're both planned to have $700 a piece, yeah. which would be really tight for 40 days, you know, especially that distance. So I show up at the, air, the train station. My brother comes out of the crowds and he says, hey, you made it. Yeah, yeah. So how much money you got? 250 bucks. He's got 175. <laughs> and I got 180 bucks. Yeah. So I remember we talked, man, what do we do? We got this whole break yeah. time, you know. And so we walked out of the train station around London for a while. We decided we'll go for it. Mm. And our big thinking was, well, in Africa, it'll be warm. It'll be warm. Uh, so we'll go for it. So we just started taking off on this you, trip. You, you had a plan for this trip or no? So we had no maps, nothing. So what were you? You <laughs> were in. You were in the UK. I was in, in the UK studying. I had my semester break in wintertime. So when you yeah, said let's go for it, what did that mean? Like let's well, go I, to France? Well, I'd just go to Africa. That was go okay. to Africa. Go to Africa. But the closest one would have been straight down to Morocco. Yeah, we we just we had no plan. Like I said, we had no. Let's plans. go to Africa. Somehow we're in Greece <laughs> and, and just started out on the trip. I remember we got from London. We got this overnight ship train from London to Paris. Got into Paris. We had fr- French, older French couple my family knew. Showed up at their house. They really took care of us in their flat. And then we left there, and it was just this crazy adventure. Wild. And we spent 40 days on the road. We only paid for lodging three times out of 40 nights. Nice. We slept in train station, slept in a backyard, slept at a Bedouin camp. We had this one crazy story sleeping in this tractor. I'll tell you real quick. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. No, not quick. Give us the full version. Okay. We're, we're, we're in, uh, in, in <laughs> France. We're trying to hitchhike from Paris down to Italy and then cross over to Africa. Yeah. So we're in Paris, and we get out there at 6 in the morning, early, start hitchhiking, and nobody will give us a ride. So we're out there two hours, three hours, five hours, seven hours. Nobody will give us a ride. So we start walking and hitching out of Paris. Finally, a car stops. Like, oh, great, we got our first ride. We hop in the car. He drives just about 30 kilometers out of Paris, yeah. dumps us off in the country. So now in the country, it's getting dark. It's evening. It's around the road. So we hitchhike, hitchhike hitchhike until like 12 in the morning uh, now there's almost no cars out there we're lost sure. out in the country don't know where we are <laughs> been on the road for about 15 hours trying to hitchhike and then it starts pouring rain the clouds open up in this pouring rain so we're looking out and we got a backpack we're tired where can we go where can we go we see out in the distance field this big tractor that's all i can see through the mist and the rain mm. is this tractor so you run sliding through the mud climb up the tractor's open we nice. climb in the tractor close the door we're dead tired we're soaking wet we're muddy we just fall fast Pass asleep out, yeah. i thought it was like five minutes we slept probably three or four hours then we hear this banging on the door of the tractor so we both wake up and it's a construction worker He's coming out to a site to work. And he's pissed off. <laughs> sure. We're in his tractor. Then all he calls his buddies over. There's about 12 other construction workers. We then see the site. It's a construction site. Yeah. <laughs> so they drag us out of the tractor, pull us up to their foreman, who's got this big truck with this radio at the time, kind of this phone, and they go back out in the field to start working at the site. So we're talking to this foreman, the boss, and he's speaking in French, which I know about this much French. Sure. And I hear the word policio. I know Policio. So as soon as he says that word, I look at my brother. It's like, let's go. Let's get out of here. So we take off on a dash across the muddy field back to the road. 
the, the foreman surprised, he calls the other construction workers. Now we got this crew of construction workers chasing <laughs> us to the road through the mud. So I'm slipping in the mud, trying uh, to stay, stay, stay up. And now it's morning traffic. There's a lot of cars in the road. So we get to the road. We start running down the road. They're tracing us, hitchhiking as we're running. Well, they're getting closer and closer. We're afraid they're going to catch us <laughs> and beat us up. So we zigzag across the road, start hitchhiking the opposite direction. Nice. So now they're on this side of the road, the group of construction workers. We're on this side hitchhiking, <laughs> and they're yelling threats at us in French, and we're just smiling and hitchhiking. And the best luck I had, a car stops. This very well-dressed businessman, yeah. beautiful, clean car. We're all muddy and dirty. Puts us in his car, and he ends up driving us to a little train station out in the beautiful. country. Beautiful. And then we took the train back to Paris, backtracked, to start over again. <laughs> oh. That was the beginning of our trip. Rewind. And then we started sneaking on trains across Europe. Uh, we'd hitchhike, sneak on a train. Sometimes we get caught. Um, I get kind of the so soft just, spot for train conductors, though. Just, just one before. So, sure. he, your brother came from the states. Right? Yes. Yes. And met you in the UK or in England. What did you guys have with you? What Not were you? What were you? Because the one of the Not much one of the excerpts on the on, for the book is yeah. one pair of pants or whatever. Which is true. So what? It sounds just true. just for some context for the people. What what did you have with you when you you're planning forty days? That's all you knew was forty days. Let's get to Africa. We didn't know how long it'd be. We thought you okay. know thirty forty days. And what did you have with you? I had a, one pair of brown corduroy pants. I had a T-shirt, two T-shirts. I had a shirt that was kind of a long sleeve, a little warmer. Then I had like an old sweater. Then I had my high school letter jacket. Oh, I had that, but I had that. <laughs> then I had this big overcoat. So that's what I had. Yeah. And a few pairs of underwear. I could put everything in my backpack. And I hated carrying stuff when I traveled. So I never carried a backpack or a sleeping bag. Yeah, yeah. I never carried more than I could put on myself at one time. Yeah. So that's all I had. And we had no maps. Mm. We later got maps in Paris from the people we stayed with. Their father-in-law brought us out some maps one night of Europe and Africa. We lost that really quickly. It dropped in the mud and the snow. Nice. And we never used maps. So we traveled across northern Africa. We were literally traveling blind. Mm. We had no idea. I had no idea the shape of Tunisia. I knew Algeria was big, but I didn't know where the shape was or Morocco. Wild. The roads we didn't know, and that led us on some really crazy adventures. Sure. And this was in the winter. Yeah, this is December. Through Wow. Well, December. So you made out of Paris and? Made out of Paris. We started hitchhiking south. Uh, got stuck in the tractor. Then took a train back to Paris. Then started sneaking <laughs> on trains and hitchhiking down through through uh, Europe. Europe man. Uh, France, Switzerland. Got to Italy. I'm more experienced in Italy. We're out on the road in the early morning, 6 o'clock. I got a little bit of beard. You know, I'm traveling hard. And, and this car goes by with these th th three uh, pretty French girls, mm. or I'm sorry, Italian girls, and they whistle. So we wave at them. They drive by. Well, different sure times. Enough, yeah. <laughs> was about 10 <laughs> minutes later, the same car pulls back around and gives us a ride. So we yeah. hop in the car at these three girls. They drive us like two hours, way, Beautiful. way down the road. Then they stop, let us up. We say, thank you, thank you. We can hop out again. They leave. They come back a second time. Beautiful. Picked us up a second time and drove us further. I think I'll, I'll be down the Rome. And then from there, we, we just kept hitchhiking, sneaking on trains, got to uh, Sicily. And then from Sicily, we wanted to take a ship to uh, northern Africa, Tunisia, mm. in Trapani. And all we had was this one date on Wednesday at this time, there should be a ship leaving from Trapani. Wow. We didn't know if it would be there. We didn't know anything about that. That was our timetable. So we, got, we hitchhiked across uh, Sicily. The coast of Sicily was beautiful. Got to this train or this uh, shipyard, ran down to the shipyard, and there was a ship there, just getting ready to pull out. Beautiful. So we ran into the custom building. How do you know where he was? You knew he was going to Africa. There's only yeah one basically one route they go okay. from Messina to uh, Tunisia. 
So we went down to the shipyard. We didn't have a ticket. We had our stamp, passport stamp. There's a big crowd of people arguing with the custom official near the boat. So we kind of fil filtered in with them and just walked out from the crowd onto the plank. So we walked across the plank and there's a boatman on the ship and we just showed confidence walked right past them on the ship with no ticket yeah. then got in the ships and we had to kind of hide in the ship for the rest of the ship ride that's all right but we got into tunisia with that's no ticket right. for the, the ship. how long how long was the ride on the ship it was pretty long it was like 12 15 hours and they had to stop out in the ocean at nighttime and wait for the morning to let us off the ships so we were sitting on the ocean for or the mediterranean for a while and then getting into tunisia there's is there immigration or something there when you get there or no? yeah there's immigration and uh so we get into Tunisia, it's, it's night nighttime. No, it's early, mid mid afternoon, middle of the afternoon. And we gotta get our get our stamp. We get stamped to let us into Tunisia. We go into the streets of Tunis and then it's like unbelievable the attention. I mean I I'd gotten attention to other countries, but just everybody <laughs> is just staring. Everywhere Dead we go. Stairs, eh? F thankfully <laughs> was friendly stairs. Mm. They're kind of hospitable. And so we walk through the streets of Tunis, like, wow, what do we do? Are we staring at us? Find a little place to eat. We walk in this little shop, buy some meat, little meat sandwich, and all these men come in the shop, surround us. But they're friendly. Yeah. They want to touch us. They want to shake our hand. Sure. So they, this one guy, what his name was, Theron, asked us to go to a little coffee shop with him. We go to the coffee shop with him, have some coffee with his friends, talk with him. Then we find a cheap hotel, and then we started our trip across Africa. We told them, oh, we're going from Tunisia we're going to Algeria, mm. and they're all shocked. Like, Why? we can't go to Algeria. Yeah. Nobody goes to Algeria. <laughs> you don't have visas. You can't get a visa. You can't go to Algeria. Mm. We knew nothing. Mm. We're like, well, that's where we're going. So the next day, we wake up early, always at dawn, get out on the road, start hitchhiking, and got on a, sh a, a, a bus across Tunisia through the Sahara Desert. And remember, it's always just men. When we're in the Sahara, it was always men. Women were just kind of not seen. They're covered up by. Uh. He jobs in, in, was, in the shadows. Was uh, how how did you know Algeria? Why was Algeria a, a destination of? It was interest? just next in line, right? You know, we go across Tunisia. Okay, so you didn't know if you were going to get to Morocco or some well, Algeria. We planned, or... we, we planned to go Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Okay. And I, I I'd never seen a map of Tunisia or Algeria. I saw a map one time of Morocco. Mm. I didn't know the shape or the size of, of, of Algeria. Okay. I know the names of the cities. Uh, and when you went. Did you anticipate going through the Sahara, or if you went along the coast? I mean, the coast is Best reasonably developed, right? That's we plan. We plan. We'll get through Tunisia, across into Algeria. We'll go up to the coast, the Mediterranean coast, and we'll travel along the northern of Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Be relatively much easier route. Right. Well, what happened when we crossed from Tunisia to Algeria? I read it's the most desolate border in the world, mm. which I believe. We're in this little town called Farina, in, in Tunisia. We need to get out of the border to cross the border. Well, there's nothing out there. There's just one little strip of pavement going out to the border. Disappears in the desert. <laughs> so we had to hire a guy with a Jeep. This man had a big Jeep. So we paid the guy some money. He drove us from Farina out to the border post. Well, the border post, I got a photo of this. I don't have it with me. But all there is is one little white building is Tunisia to exit Tunisia. One strip of pavement. No lines in the road. No markings. No wow. signs. And then about a, about a mile down the road, another building, and that's Algeria. Everywhere you look, it's just empty Sahara Desert. Wow. Nothing there. So we walk into this uh, Tunisian border post to exit Tunisia. We walk in the building. There's like four or five soldiers. And they're tough-looking soldiers. They got beers. They all got rifles. They're sweaty. They're dirty. And they're not friendly. Mm. It's a very hostile environment. So we walk in there. 
they're shocked to see these foreigners come in. Nobody crosses that border. And then they ask for our passports. <laughs> we put our American passports down, and now they're completely shocked. Yeah. Two Americans? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, what are you doing? You're trying to go to Algeria? So we're in there for like an hour and a half. It's really tense. The guy took our uh, soldiers, took our passports, this back room, the other soldiers around us, uh, surrounding us. Finally, he comes back, stamps their passports. Mm. Now we can exit Tunisia. So we start walking across this road. Now it's getting dark, evening time, to Algeria, about a kilometer to the Algeria building. We walk up to the Algeria building. It's like two soldiers sitting out in the outside the building. And it's the same thing. They're very hostile. They're not friendly. They've mm. got their rifles, their uniforms. We walk in the building, and it's the same, just shocked. What are these guys doing? So we walk in. Immediately, one guy gets behind the counter. We know he's the guy in charge, this big soldier. He takes our passports, starts going through our passports. He asks for our money. He sees our passports. Visa. Where's your visa? We didn't even know we are supposed to have a visa. Yeah. We were so, you know, just completely unprepared. No visa on arrival? No visa. So it's like, <laughs> sits us down. Now we don't know what he's do with us. Yeah. Technically, we just broke the law. We tried to enter the country illegally. So we sit down on this bench with these three soldiers around us. He goes in the back room, slams the door. We're just waiting. What's our fate? What's he going to decide? He can do anything he wants with us sure. out there. Nobody's ever known. Same known. level of... of it. Mm. Uncomfortableness. Uncomfortableness is the Soviet <laughs> Union or no? Or uh, the Soviet Union was worse. Because Soviet Union was the entire system. Mm. Not just that one room, one situation. But it's very close. Very close. Mm. So we sit there and wait. Finally he comes back, gives us our passports, and he says, No entry. Back. Tunisia. Tunisia. Back. So now we gotta leave the Algerian building, walk across this empty desert to Tunisia, and hope they'll let us in Tunisia. Yeah. If they say no entry, let us back into back, back into, into Tunisia. Tunisia. We just yeah, left there okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. two hours before, yeah. <laughs> so we're not we don't know if they'll let us in. So I was really scared. They're gonna oh. say no. We're standing out in the middle of the road, in the middle of the desert. Sure. So we finally walk back, get our guts up. We walk into the building. He looks. At, he crosses out the Tunisian exit visa, exit yeah, visa yeah. and says Gaza, Gaza. I don't know what Gaza meant. So we leave the building. We walk back into this little town of Farina. Not a town. There's a couple of windswept buildings. And this older Arab man walks out of one of the buildings. Hello, I'm Gaza. (laughs) Very tall guy. And he says, uh, gestures, what do you need? And we say, oh, we need to go back, back, back to take a bus ship or a bus uh, car. He doesn't understand. Finally, we say the word Farina. We knew the city, the village name. Mm. He recognized it. He says, wait, wait. So we sit down by the building out there in the wind in the middle of the desert, waiting for like two hours. Don't know what's going on. Finally, this old Jeep pulls in the car in the uh-huh. town, and there's a guy there, this young young uh, Tunisian guy. Oh, cool. He puts us in his car, drives us back to Farina. We find out Gasfa is another town. It's about 110 miles back. So we got to backtrack 110 miles, which I hate backtracking, mm. spending money without... Making sure. you know distance, backtrack. This really kind Algerian uh, immigration officer at the uh, uh, office in mm. Gasva gave us our visa, took our pass or a visa picture, charged us nothing. Oh, sweet. and he documented all our money. Every dime we take bring in the country, just like Eastern Europe, is documented. Send us on our way. We go back out to the same border crossing two days later. Get out of Tunisia, go into Algeria. This time we have the visa, they let us enter. Mm-hmm. I found out later they did not issue visas, I believe, for like 25 years oh, to any foreigners uh, coming to Algeria. But we had the visa, so they said, okay, enter. He points across the room to this door going out. Well, now, to show how unprepared we were, we're like, well, what do we do now? We're at this border post. We know we're miles and miles from anywhere. Yeah. How are we going to get into the town? 
So we walk back over to the, the soldier, ask him about, you know, bus transportation. <laughs> I said, pictures. dude, I got six bucks. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, no, four days, three days, next bus, next car, three days. Oh, oh Jesus. So we have an option of waiting at that border post for three days with these four or five soldiers with all these guns, <laughs> not friendly at all, sure. or walk. So I tell my brother, we got to walk it. Sure. We got to walk. So we leave that border post, start walking out into the Sahara Desert. We got no food. No vultures water. are just flying over here, just looking like they're going to go down soon. <laughs> Their next meal. Hold up, boys. <laughs> Into the desert was a dark night, so there was just no no stars. We couldn't see anything. Oh, wow. And we walked about six hours into the darkness. And it was so dark when we walked, we couldn't tell if we were on the road or the desert. Because the desert hard rock yeah. in that area. So we'd have to kneel down sometimes and touch the desert or the yeah. road to make sure we're not on the road, not in the desert. Wow. So we walked for like six or seven hours just into the emptiness. Like yeah. twilight zone, just all dark. And finally, after about six, seven hours, it's now around midnight or so, a, we see two lights coming from behind us. We don't know what it is. We can just see these two little lights. Are the guys going home? Closer, yeah, it was. Oh, nice. <laughs> One of the soldiers yeah, yeah. from the from the checkpoint. He's in his car. He pulls up. We kind of finally walk around the car to see who's in. We're shocked to see a soldier. He's got a big pistol right here. He's got a big rifle right here. He's much bigger than both my brother and I. Yeah. He looks at us and he tells us to get in the car. He doesn't ask us. Yeah. So we hop in the car. My brother's in the front. I'm in the back. He starts driving into Algeria. Well, we think the first town in Algeria is about 40 miles. Mm. The only map I had, which wasn't really a map, was in a bathroom in Italy. There was a map on the wall in <laughs> northern Africa. Yeah. And I saw this line, so I drew a line, little stop, city, stop. I had no names or nothing. So I looked at it. Oh, it's about 40 miles. So I think we'll walk 40 miles that night. Yeah. So this guy picks us up. It turned out to be 80 <laughs> miles to the first town. Oh. And then he won't let us out of the car. And that's where our plans changed. Yeah. Things became really adventurous. Instead of going north, the northern route along the coast, he turns dead south in the Sahara. Oh, no. We're going into an unknown land. We don't know where we are, where we're going. Uh -oh. We're on this one road, this big soldier. He doesn't say a word to us. And he drives this all night, about six hours in that car with him. And there's no other cars. We pass two little, little specks of a village, just empty desert. Oh, my God. Finally, at dawn, maybe about six, seven in the morning, he stops the car outside of this one little village. So my brother's in the front seat. I'm in the back seat. He turns to us, starts gesturing. He wants to trade black market for our money. Mm. They love, especially American dollars. Sure. So it's like, well, we better. He's got a, he's got a rifle. You know? <laughs> so, we, so we start haggling with him in the car. Yeah. We can't speak. So I'd get, he'd give me like a hundred dinero bill. I'd give him like twenty dollar bill and this bill and. He'd say, no, no, we take our money back. He'd take his money back. So we're in there like an hour, and we're, we're trying to hold really tough. Mm. we got to make some money. So we're just haggling back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he gets really angry. So he takes the money we have, gives us his money, opens the door, throws my brother's backpack out of the car, pushes my brothers out of the car, looks at me, points to get out of the car. Oh. So I hop out of the car with my brother. Yeah. He speeds away, disappears out into the desert. Now on the side of the road, outside this little village in the morning, we have no idea where we are. Oh, my God. And uh, uh, my brother's like, man, we, we, that was a tough situation. Like, yeah, we made a lot of money. When he, when he was trading with us in the car, he gave us 200 narrow bills. He gave us one. I put it in my hand. I was holding it. I wasn't hiding it. On my thigh in the back seat, he forgot about that money. Oh. So when he got angry, he gave us another hundred euro bill, and then our, our took our money. Oh, so yeah. we made quite a bit of money in that deal, which really helped us. Yeah, no doubt. But then we're worried about it. So we find out we have this money, he's gonna come back and shoot us. Sure. <laughs> so we got double the money. Wow.
wild. So that kind of set us off through the Sahara. Mm. We didn't plan to go that route. We figured we'd gone six, seven hours that night. It'd be farther if we go back, so we'll keep going forward, reach a point of no return. And then we started hitchhiking. In the Sahara, there's like one little village, little village, and then maybe 100 kilometers, empty, just desert. Mm. Another little village, maybe 120 kilometers, little village. Wow. And we just hitchhiked from village to village to village. Crazy. But it was an amazing experience because those little villages we'd hitchhike into, they had never seen Americans before, never seen foreigners. Mm. So we'd get out of the car, whatever, walk on the street, and we're just surrounded. 20, 30 people, kids, men, women I just didn't see. They're always covered, they're always in the shadows. But they want to touch us, want to shake our hand. Sure. But it was just immediately acceptance. There's no hostility, no fear. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it was. It was very weird. Isn't that weird? We had that in Niger. Now it's in the news again because of the coup d'etat, but when we were there, Niger had just finished the civil war, and they'd they'd been closed borders for 20-something years. Yes. And we were there like within three months or four months of the borders being open. And uh, we were in uh, Niamey and we wanted to go to the Sahara. And, and someone had gone two months before that I met in Ghana and said, listen, don't go on a camel trek in Timbuktu in Mali because in Niamey you can get up to Agadez and it'll be like 50 bucks. You can go for two weeks with every, all your food, oh, everything. Yeah. I said, okay, well, same. I'm going on a few dollars a day. No problem. That's what we're doing. So my sister and I went up, but we got there late to the to the station, the station, whatever, the parking lot. And they said, okay, well, we got to wait for the car to fill. We need five people. Oh, right. So there's three of you or four of you. we got to wait for one more. Sun was going down. Nobody showed up. Said, okay, we're not leaving tonight because we can't go after the sun goes down because the, the gorillas will hijack the cars so oh, we, only, yeah. we only traveled during the daylight so I said you have to find somewhere to sleep and I was like there's nowhere to sleep here what do you mean anyways we paid a couple of bucks slept on the floor of some hut or something and we went the next morning and the the drivers got saying two AK-47s whatever like, mm-hmm. what like this is a little bit how crazy is this I said, well we got to be prepared for gorillas to, to, to shoot these guys if they right. shoot us we got to be ready to shoot back and I'm like <laughs> I don't know if this is the part that my buddy didn't tell me about or what. Uh, but then it was the same on a bus. We took a bus on the way back. There was a bus going, and these soldiers come on, four soldiers, two at the front, two at the back. And the guy didn't put his gun down for six hours sitting beside He said he had to sit beside my sister. And I said, no, 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 you're not going to sit beside I'll sit beside my sister. Again, you don't know what's going to happen. You never yeah, know yeah. what's going on. Yeah, yeah. But they said... These guys will come out of the bush and just start shooting, and we got to be here on the outside. Yeah, and shooting your that. sister should be on the inside beside me, so I'll be able to protect. And I was like, anyways, the same thing. Like we were up there on camels, no school, no calendars, yeah, no markets, no, just nothing, just survival, survive on the land, and same thing, never. Most of these people have never seen, because most of the guys going up would have done four or five days on camels, and we yeah. were going two weeks, Yeah, because we wanted to get deep somewhere in there, and same thing, like, just people, up in it. it's, it's like you're an alien on, on the moon or it, something. It, it was, and, and they had like, really wow. uh, strange perceptions, I had sometimes myself, of, of uh, America, because there might be somebody from their village, you went to another big city one time and saw a movie, or you saw one sure. magazine sometime somewhere. Wow. So they thought, they, they'd ask me, the little kids come up, have you ever shot an Indian? 
an Indian fight. Yeah. They point to like Bowen Arrows. <laughs> they assumed that America was still cowboys and Indians. Yeah. yeah. Those old Western oh, movies. Wow. Right. Also, the perception of uh, gangsters. Like every street corner, there's a gangster with a time machine gun <laughs> yeah. shooting. Oh, that's kind of shot true. by a gangster. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting that way. <laughs> you said you like to travel light, but yeah. as you're traveling through those tiny little towns, did you pick up any little trinkets or, or souvenirs or stuff along the way? Uh, I've, I've got a few things huh? that I kept that were really important. Also, I, I, when I traveled behind the Iron Curtain, I went to uh, Auschwitz. Mm. Which is way before Auschwitz was ever open. Hmm. It was in just the, the state it was when the the, the, the uh, Americans uh, liberated it. Oh my God! So I, I went there to Auschwitz, and there was just nobody out there, and you got the feeling of the the death and the the yeah. circumstances, you know. And I remember they got that whatever it's called, the gates of death, and you walk, the train would pull in. Yeah, yeah. Everybody on one side was all women, one side was was all men, and uh, there was one little old guy who slept up in the top of that gates of death a little place up there he came down he's shocked to see these americans nobody comes out there mm. but he was very friendly so he gave us a tour and he walked us around the whole place and at the very back of the camp he took us to the death ovens where the where the people were, were uh, uh burned, burned yeah. killed and what he told us is that when the train would pull up you know, it's full of all the people on the train. And you got one side of the camp as women, one side as men. You got all the, the Nazi soldiers. They'd have a, a camp um, choir musicians mm. would be on the on the on the around the train playing music to calm people. Mm. So when they got off the train, they didn't know what's going to happen to them. And the com- commander would just watch people come off the train and point. You go here. Yeah. Here, you go here. It was life or death. Yeah. You go here. You're fit. You can work for us. Yeah. Slave. No, you're going to death right now. Yeah. And those that were pointed for death, they'd take them to the back of the uh, camp. It's a long walk, I remember, to get there to the uh, death death showers. And they told them they're getting to have a shower. Yeah. So they'd take off all their clothes, they put them in the room, and then the gas would come on, they'd yeah. kill them all. Have you read uh, Man's Search for Meaning? No. Victor Frankl? Oh, it's the, he... It's a guy who survived Auschwitz, but he uh, he details all of that and like the, just the horrors of living in a camp, and it's wild. And it's just everyone has so little food yeah. that you know, like you wouldn't want to share with a friend because if you look emaciated, if you look like like you're thinning out, you just uh, you're looking a little weak today, Johnny. Yeah, <laughs> and you get the you get swipe left and you're yeah. uh, and your toast, man. Wild. Take us through the ending of the. The Saharan trip. Okay. How, so, how did it finish? Well, what happened is we got through uh, Tuni- Tunisia, and uh, uh, I'll tell you one quick story in Tunisia on the bus. We took a few buses in Tunisia, and we hitchhiked totally Algeria. Well, on the bus in Tunisia, it's all men. Like I said, I always saw men mm. with the turbans and on the robes, and my brother and I are on the bus. And this older man walked in the bus with this young woman who was covered with the shawls and sat down. There was like 30 other men that one man and a woman. Well, during the bus ride, it was very rough through the Sahara. Her shawl came down, so you see her face. So she's a very beautiful woman. Mm. So I had a natural reaction. I just kind of smiled and waved. Oh, man, big mistake. (laughs) Every man on the bus stopped talking. They looked at the woman, and then they looked at me with this pure anger. And I could see them looking at me, and they're talking together, looking at me, and now I'm getting really nervous. I just want to kind of hide. Well, I see them talking. Finally, the bus stops. There's no no traffic out there, so it stops in the middle of the road. All the men get off the bus. Mm. I can see them through the front window having this big, angry argument. Finally, they storm back in the bus, sit down, the bus leaves, and nothing happened. Well, I found out later from a guy named uh, Muhammad and Abbas, who was sitting near us, we became friends with mm. later. They told me when I waved at that girl, 
I disrespected her father. She was with her father. If I want to speak to a woman, I talk to her father, the father talks to the girl. I talk to her brother, the brother talks to the woman. Never speak directly, especially as a foreigner. So I defended her bus, every man on that bus. And he said they decided that it was just a matter of ignorance, not intent. So they didn't do anything. But that whole trip through, I only spoke one word, one time to one woman. Just <laughs> never saw them. Very, very, very traditional. Huh. But uh, anyways, we got through Tunisia into Algeria, hitchhiked up Algeria all the way to uh, northern Algeria. But to get through Algeria, we had to get through the Sub-Saharan War, which is a long-standing war between Tun- uh, Morocco and Algeria. And the Polisario guerrillas control. There's only one highway that goes from through Algeria, goes this way into Morocco, or it goes north. To northern Algeria. We're on that one road heading into the war zone. So as we're hitchhiking across the Sahara in Algeria, the villages we're hitchhiking to, they start telling us, no, no, you must go back. Shooting, war, yeah. soldiers, guerrillas. No, no, nobody. You must go back. You must go back. Well, we had reached a point of no return. Mm. We knew going back, no way we'd have enough money. <laughs> yeah. We didn't think we'd have enough money going forward, but at least we had a chance. So we kept going. So finally, we reached one village through the Sahara, and we get in the village, and like usual, we're stared at, we're surrounded by people, and you know, blah blah blah. So we we, we decided to start hitching again. So we walk out of the little little village into the road going out in the desert. We start hitchhiking, and an old truck pulls up. The guy, no, 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 drives on. No, 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 no. Nobody will give us a ride. Hmm. So we walk back into the village. We find out that the, that road leads directly to the Polisario guerrilla checkpoint oh. and no civilians allowed especially a couple of Americans <laughs> so it's like well what are we going to do so I'm with my brother on the street it's like we got no money we're getting low we're getting, you know uh, we'll bribe somebody so we asked some of the men on the street around us we'll pay somebody to take us through the guerrilla checkpoint mm. they finally understand us one guy helped us these two men to come with us we follow these two guys with the robes you know and the turbans to the back streets we don't trust them they take this little alley and there's this little cafe kind of outdoor cafe and there's this one guy sitting at the cafe I call him Scarface in my book mm. he's got this beard he's got this wicked looking scar down the side of his neck and, <laughs> yeah. and the two men walk over to him in kind of very hushed kind of nervous tones talk to this man then they walk back over to us and say you talk to him and they leave so now we're alone with, with Scarface in this, this back alley trying to uh, get him to take us so we start talking to him not talking we writing you know, notes and so forth we finally agree we'll pay him $15 one five yeah. I remember we're spending $6 a day for all our expenses yeah, yeah, yeah. and also in Algeria western currency is worth a lot so we'll pay him $15. He finally agrees after a lot of haggling. So I make him write out a paper, one, five, dollar sign. Mm. So I rip you off later. And then I take out my hand. I put in my hand, dollar sign, one, five. I make him shake my hand yeah. with the $15. We got a deal. Yeah. I can't, you know, can't renege on the deal. So we follow him to his big old you truck. Know, can always renege. Oh, he did. He sure did. <laughs> <laughs> can always renege. He nailed us later. <laughs> So we followed him to his truck. In his truck, he's got this big tarp over the back of the truck, and there's another guy with him, his partner, riding partner. So we climb the, the front of the truck behind them, looking out the windshield, sitting up there, and he starts driving out into the desert. Now the roads are really bumpy and slow. As we're going through the desert, I'll tell one quick story. I had been eating uh, goose-goose during this trip. The only food yeah. we get was goose-goose. And I love the taste of it, but it made me very uh, sick. I had the runs all the time. Uh, 
from the from the goose goose. So, anyways, we're, we're driving to the desert. I start passing gas as we're bumping through the, with the truck. The truck, truck starts really smelling. So I see the two men talking together, looking at each other. They're getting kind of worried about the uh, the smell on the yeah. truck. So they start reaching <laughs> into the vents, you know, and they're talking, talking. Finally, they stop the truck. They get out of the truck to pull up the hood of the, the front hood, and they're looking under the engine, putting water on you know, blah, blah, blah. They come back like, okay, we got that fixed. Yeah. The whole time was just me with my uh, smelly yes. cars. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, they drive us about another couple hours. Now we're out in the middle of the Sahara. don't know where we are. They pull off the road behind this big sand hill mm. and go to the back of the truck, and he pulls the tarp off the truck, and there's military supplies in the back of the trucks, uh, boots and uniforms for the, the gorillas he pulls that up puts us un, under the clothes and the bo- boots ties the tarp on top of puts it, you guys under it underneath it so now we're isolated in that back back part of the truck can't hear anything can't see anything and we start moving so we're sitting i don't know how long it was maybe one hour two hours we're just back there sweating it you know finally the truck stops they're at the gorilla checkpoint now it's do or die we hear the door open him come out we can hear these voices of other men coming behind the truck and they're talking in arabic blah 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 blah. don't know what they're saying finally the the door opens the guy gets in the truck closes the door and the truck starts pulling out hmm. so now we're just hoping we got past the checkpoint that's the hustler driving hmm. the truck not a soldier and we sit back there for another couple hours drive 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 find the truck stops they come back to back of the truck pull the tarp up and it's uh scarface and his buddy Mm. And they got us to the checkpoint. They put us back in the truck, drive further. We drive through the desert a few more hours. Then we pull into a town. And remember, these towns are just all one-level building, clay building, nobody. And the town's empty. There's, like, just nobody on the streets. Mm. So that's kind of a little worrisome. Why Did they flee? Is there a curfew or something? He stops the truck outside the town, and he says, okay. He's asking for the money. Mm. So I pull out the $15, give him $15. He takes the $15, puts it in his pocket, and says, no, 50 50 This oh, shit, 50 Son of a bitch. With his hand. <laughs> we got to pay $50. We're like, no. Mm. He's ripping us off. It's a blatant ripoff, which happens a lot. And uh, <laughs> But... The way he defeated us, he just looks across the road. Way in the back, we can see this long building. There's three soldiers with rifles. Say hello to my little friends. Exactly. Yeah. Leaning against the wall. He said, there, give me the money or you go there. Mm. And we know we're not supposed to be in this area across the border, you know, yeah. across illegally. So we gave him the 50 bucks, got out of the, out of the uh, truck. And then we started hitchhiking further north, north into uh, Algeria. Got into a town called Oran to get ready to go into, Alger- into Morocco. But the next big challenge is we've been we've been told the entire time the your board, semester starts in one week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you forgot school starts. Yeah, the borders closed between Morocco and Algeria. Is what we've been told. Nobody's allowed through. Mm. So we're hoping maybe with an American passport for some reason to let us in. So we get all the way up. To <laughs> I think your optimism. <laughs> we had to have it, man. Yeah. All the way up to Algeria to the border. Walk up to the border to exit Algeria. Mm. The same thing, you got the porter post, the soldiers. We go in, they check everything, and they stamp us to leave Algeria. Now we got to get into Morocco. Will they let us into Morocco is the big question. We go up into the building. There's like three or four soldiers. These guys are kind of clean, not, not the dirty, bearded guys from the desert. And they're very official. And they start looking at our papers, looking at our passport. Then they ask us for our shot papers. We have to have certain shots to enter. And we'd gotten our Even shots. Even back then? Yeah, we had to. Before we left wow. yeah. London, we got our shots. But my brother had lost a shot paper. Oh, no. He couldn't find it. So now it becomes a big problem. It starts getting real tense. 
They put us on this bench outside. They, they leave us there for a while. Then one of the custom officials and a soldier walk up and just take my brother. They force him to stand up. Mm. I start to stand up. They push me right down. Well, let me stand up. They take him away. So my brother's now gone. I'm sitting in this little border post in uh, El, uh, Morocco. It's enter Morocco. Don't know where my brother is. Mm. What's happening to him? Are they deporting him? Are they putting him in prison? And I just sit there sweating bullets for about an hour. Mm. Finally, the door opens. My brother comes back out with another soldier. And I'm like, John, what did they do with you? What happened? He said, they took me to another room and they gave me like three shots. I couldn't stop. <laughs> I couldn't stop. <laughs> and then they allowed us into uh, Morocco. Oh, wow. And then we started hitchhiking across uh, Morocco. And there, the uh, atmosphere changed a lot. Mm. In Tunisia and Algeria, it was just open friendliness, kindness, automatically accepted. We're mm. so foreign to them. But there's some immediate acceptance. Morocco is more like, what do you need, Joe? You want some hash? Yeah. Want a woman? What do you need, Joe? <laughs> so at this point, you're up on the north coast? Yeah, we're pretty close. Pretty close. We're in a city, mm. city called uh, uh, Ajibwe. Ajibwe, I think it is. It's okay. close to the coast. And uh, it's the first time we enter in Morocco. We get out of the car in, in, in the city, and we're immediately surrounded by 15, 20 hustlers. And they're aggressive. They're mm. not like, oh, can I help you? What do you need? It's like, hey, Joe, you want, want some hash? You want a woman? Come yeah. with me. Come, come with me. It's, uh-huh. it's like a beach in Thailand. You want a tattoo? <laughs> no. Pill? You want no. a mango? Woman? No. Blowjob? No. <laughs> so we just keep walking. We can't stop. We stop. We get surrounded too much, and it's just too threatening. So we keep walking through the, the, the little town. Finally, we see some little room we think might be a bus station. So we leave the herd of men, go in this bus station, close the door. They're outside the, room, the door looking <laughs> in at us. We ask the guy at this little bus station about a ticket to... Uh, Tangiers. Mm. We need to take a Tangiers, take a Tangiers. He's like, three hours. Wait three hours. Yeah. So we sit on that floor. We're, we're afraid to go back outside with all sure. the men waiting for us. We sit on the floor of that little uh, bus station for three hours. That clerk is with us for three hours, standing right there. He knows we're waiting for that bus to pull in mm. to leave. So finally, after three hours, buses are always late, you know, in those places. The bus finally pulls in. We get up to go on the bus, and that same clerk stops us and says, no. Like, no, 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 Tangiers. We go to Tangiers. Yeah. We need tickets. No, sold out. No tickets. Oh, you we sat there for three hours. Yeah. He knew there were no seats. Never said a word. Cutlass. Uh-huh. So now we're, at, we're, now we're stuck in this little train station or bus but, station. But, but, but is it? Like, I find sometimes in these countries, it's just like, if you were from there, you would have waited there for 10 hours anyways, because that's what you got to do. No? Like, is it intentional? I, I, I find, like, sometimes, like... But you knew that. Why didn't you tell me? Well, because my people don't care. They'll just wait for six hours. Yeah. It's mixed sometimes. And I, and I think, like, is that just my Western mentality? Like, you knew that. Why didn't you tell me that and tell me six hours or 12 hours? And, and I think sometimes it's not intentional. And it's just we don't understand that way. Of, I mean, so did I you only just have to wait for the next bus? Or no, just we're, like stuck six hours? The, we're stuck at that little station. <laughs> it's now nighttime, more, a little more dangerous for us. We have no way out of the town. We don't know if there's a bus or anything else so we, we go back out on the street they shut down that bus station yeah. and we start walking the street at night it's very dark and there's yeah, just yeah. a few lights and shadows and there's a couple hustlers now and that's the money on the street and these two guys approach us so we start talking with them gesturing we, we want to get out of it we want to go to tangiers mm. and one guy says train yes train mm. tangiers we don't believe them. there's a train in this town we haven't seen a train for four weeks yeah, yeah. the Sahara. So anyways, we start following him through the streets at night. Don't trust him at all. And he pull, walks us up in front of this big domed building. 
we start getting close to the building, we notice this huge sound, like a rumbling roar mm. coming from inside the building. So we're a little nervous. So finally he says, here, train here. So we say thank you. So we pull out some coins, pay him a little bit of money for mm. helping us. And now we got to walk into this train station, which was like out of the twilight zone. We open the door to the train station <laughs> to walk in, and there's hundreds of people. Mm. Men, women, children, old men, young guys, yeah. scattered around the walls of the building. It's about the size of an NHL hockey rink. Pleasant huge. sight? No, huge no? room. Very noisy, all this chaos and music and children screaming. We walk in like one, two, three, four steps. The noise starts going down. <laughs> Five, six, it becomes dead quiet. Everyone turns and looks at you? Everybody's looking <laughs> at us. And they're not friendly. Yeah. And they're staring at us. And the ticket is way across the room. So we got to decide, are we going to walk further into the situation or leave and go out on the streets? Yeah. Well, if we leave and go on the streets, where do we go? Yeah. We know where to go. So we decide <laughs> to continue walking. So we're walking. It's like the walk of death. Yeah. We're walking just slowly across the room. Everybody's staring at us. They're pulling their kids behind, away from us, you know, and yeah. staring at us. We walk across the room to the ticket counter. There's one guy at the counter, and he's leaning against the wall with his arms folded, leaning back, totally disdained for us hostile mm. we say ticket tangiers he turns away from us doesn't even acknowledge us <laughs> oh. we say again ticket tangiers now this tension is just building yeah. everybody's staring at us oh. so we don't know what to do again <laughs> so while we're standing there for about maybe five minutes it seemed like five weeks two guys <laughs> from out of the crowd walk over to the counter there's this one tall lanky guy his name is Shankur yeah. I still remember him and this short little guy the short little guy has got this big bloody patch on his eye. Oh, Jesus. He's got blood on his T-shirt. Just had a son, Cobra <laughs> <laughs> So they make this really odd couple, this tall, slim guy, this short guy with a bloody patch. Yeah. And they say in broken English, what do you need? We say, ticket Tangiers. So the tall guy, Chen Kerr, tells the ticket guy, ticket Tangiers. He's not going to give a ticket. So then he shouts in a strong voice, ticket Tangiers. And finally, he walks over, writes us up a ticket, gives us a ticket for Tangiers. Oh, years. wow. So now we're with these two guys in this train station. We need somebody to have a little bit of protection. So mm. we walk back with them to the group of young guys they're with. There's about a dozen guys. And they're they're just a real scraggly group. One yeah. guy's got a dagger. One guy's got some brass knuckles. <laughs> just a tough-looking group. And, and some of them are really high. And uh, so we sit down there waiting for the train to come in. They're our only hope is stay with these yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. So we stay with them. So the train, of course, is late, but it finally pulls in. When it pulls into the station, I swear it's like a herd of cattle. Everybody gets up and starts running and pushing and fighting to get on the train. So we hop on the train, walk through the compartments. There's no seats in the train. Mm. There's just some dirty floors and some smeared windows. One of those Indian trains just lay on top? Not, not, not no. there. Not, not, not Morocco. No, you got to get... You have to actually stand in. I've seen just, like in India, people just like stop oh, to the side. That's what oh, yeah. Yeah. I was on. Yeah. It's kind, of, kind of like that. So we got, got in one compartment. We sat down on the floor. I sit down on my backpack underneath me to kind of protect a little bit yeah. so I can't take it. Now we got a nine-hour train ride. Oh, Jesus. Do you Kansas. still got the gas? Yeah, I still got the gas. <laughs> <laughs> so we sit on the train for nine hours, and I, I, was, I was just – I couldn't stay awake. And I was really scared if I closed my eyes that somebody's going to hustle me, somebody's going to take my money, sure. steal my backpack. Always. Always. You know, something. Yeah. So I got it somehow to protect myself. So I had, I had a stretch cap back in Europe when we were in Switzerland. I had this winter stretch cap. So I pulled it out, pulled it down over my eyes. I could see through the cap, mm. but they couldn't see my eyes. So I pulled that down. I leaned back against the wall. I closed my eyes for a short time to open my eyes. I see somebody walk. I, I just watch them. So now they know I can see through the yeah. cap. 
So every now and then I'd look and watch somebody walking by. And I'd try to sleep a short time and watch. So yeah. I did that for nine hours. Oh. And one time I fell asleep for a short time. I wake up and there's a guy like this just coming closer yeah. and closer, almost about a foot away from my bag, backpack, trying to steal my stuff. And I wake up and yeah. he starts, falls away. So we make it through the train ride. The two guys we met, Sean Kerr and the other short guy, turned out to be really good guys. Sure. They never hustled us. They didn't try for anything. They sent me, he sent me this long letter later when I got back to university, all in French. Yeah. I had a French girlfriend of mine, a friend of mine, read it, translate it, and she said it was very elegant French. Right. It's like my dearest friend Dennis says, I put my pen in hand. This is what my... Yeah, this is huh. I don't know if he wrote it, who wrote it, but it's an interesting... ChatGPT. From the story. So I took that train into a Tangiers... Tangiers now we're getting really desperate on money. We know, we've known for a while we're not going to make it back with the money we have. It just, we just kind of know it in the back of our mind. We don't really accept it. Finally get to Tangiers, we just don't have enough money. So we go out on the streets of Tangiers, we spend the whole day trying to get transportation back to England. Mm. Can we work on a ship? Can we take a train? Is there some kind of bus we could do work on the bus or something? Is there any airplane flight? We go to all these different little travel agencies and places. We don't have enough money for one ticket. Let yeah, alone two. two yeah. You never thought of hiding in a landing gear? Well, <laughs> almost. <laughs> so we're on the streets of Tangiers. It's going to be nighttime. We've got to get back. We're, we can't spend any money. So it's like, what are we going to do? Well, we'll sell some of our goods. I got nothing. I got a bunch mm. of dirty T-shirts and smelly socks on the street. So we're on the street with our backpacks. We're always surrounded by the street hustlers. They always call me Joe. Hey, Joe, what do you need, Joe? What do you need, Joe? What do you need, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Maybe G.I. Joe. So I say, oh, we say we need some to sell some of our goods for cash. We need money. Mm. We'll sell something for cash. He's like, oh, yes, Joe, my friend. He has big shop. He'll buy. You yeah. sell. Stinky American T-shirt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So now we start following this guy through the streets of Tangiers at night at 10, 11 o'clock at night, getting dark. And we follow him and follow him through the markets, through those streets. He keeps saying more, further, further. So we keep following him. Finally, he makes a sharp turn off the road into this little side alley. And just like that, it's dark, it's quiet, it's very isolated. So we stop behind him, like, where are you going? we got to get some money. We want to trade mm. some coins. A little further. Come, Joe. Come, Joe. Come uh -oh. on. So we keep following this guy, which I never do normally. Mm. It goes against every instinct I have for traveling. But we're just desperate. we got to get some money. Sure. So we keep following him through this alley, another maybe 300 meters, and there's this little little lighted room on the side that has some clothes on the wall. It looks like maybe just a little clothing shop. He walks up here and he says, there, my friend's shop. He's power man. You must respect. Show respect. Mm. Power man. I'm like, what's a power man? He's getting really nervous. You got to arm wrestle him for a T-shirt? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the hustler's getting real nervous, which is making me nervous. So we walk up this little shop, look in, and there's just one light bulb, one room about the size of a garage, some clothes on the wall, and nobody, I can't see anybody in the room. Hmm. He walks to the back of the room. There's this big rug on the wall. He pulls the rug up, and there's this little low entrance into a secret back room. He pulls that rug up and points in here. Hmm. So now my brother and I have to make another decision. Do we go in? Yeah. We've gone this far. So we say, we just shrug, right? Shrug, yeah. yeah. We'll go in. So we go in this little back room. I sit down with my backpack under me. My brother's here next to me. Street house is here, and the door is over here. Hmm. As soon as we sit down, some big Arab man walks in. He's dressed in Western clothes, very well dressed, gold chain, big guy. He stands right next to the little door. 
like a bodyguard or intimidation. Yeah. Now we're really isolated, <laughs> getting more and more worse, situations getting worse. So we're waiting there. We should tell the street house, where's your friend? We want to trade for money, trade. Mm. He says, just a moment, just a moment. Finally, after like 10 minutes, just sitting there with this tension on the, the floor, this man sweeps into the room. And he's a good-looking Arab man, about 35. He's got this trim beard, dark hair. He's got this beautiful full-length robe, mm. some kind of animal skin with this cool-looking hood. He walks in. I'm shocked to see him. We're sitting on the floor. He's looking down at us. He starts walking in front of us, and he starts talking, but not really talking. He just starts ranting. I hate Americans. You do this, this, and this to my country. I want to kill Americans. I want to kill you. And he, he rants for like five or ten minutes about Americans, how much he hates us, yeah. how much he wants to kill us. So we're completely taken aback. Mm. He goes on that rant for like five, six minutes. Then he stops and says, okay, you American, you have guns. Americans always have gun. You give me a gun, I'll give you big money. Where's your gun? Give me a gun. We're like, no, look, we got no gun. We got no gun. Sorry, sorry. So he gets angry about that. Then he kind of stops the rant, mm. sits down cross-legged from us, in a very calm, composed voice, says, okay, now we deal. What do you have? He grabs my backpack from out from under me, opens it, starts throwing out all my stuff. All I got is a bunch of dirty, smelling. He's like, look at this. This is crap. He looks at the big guy at the door. Look at this. This is terrible. Throws it around. Yeah. Then he throws the backpack back over to me. So I stuff my stuff back in the, into the uh, backpack. Now he's getting kind of angry. Mm. As he's sitting there on the, on the floor across from us, he sees my uh, uh, high school jacket. I have my big jacket. Oh, nice. And the high school jacket. Uh, he noticed the high school jacket. So he pulls off my big jacket and takes my high school jacket off me. Uh. And he takes off his beautiful robe and puts on my beat-up old dirty high school jacket. He starts strutting around the room with my high school jacket on. <laughs> then he sparks some kind of order to the big guy at the door. The big guy leaves, comes back in. He's got this big mirror against the wall. The guy, the, the guy in charge walks over, looks at himself with my jacket, admiring himself. Then he sparks another order to the big guy. The big guy leaves, comes back, and he's got this beautiful full-length robe, mm. similar to his robe with this hood, and I'm thinking, man, that'd be worth a fortune back home. So he shows this, he says, I give you this robe for this jacket. It's a fair trade. I'm thinking, man, that's a great trade. Yeah. That's worth much more, but, but we need money. So we tell him that we gotta get cash. Your friends said we get cash. Mm. So he gets really angry. I think nobody mm. ever says no to him. So he throws my back, my, my school jacket back at me, uh, starts just kind of seething, sitting there seething. <sighs> Mm. Then he starts looking at my hand. On my hand, I had my high school ring. Oh, nice. This is actually my brother's ring. He passed yeah. away recently. I had, a, I had a ring similar to this, but except a big black stone. Not expensive, but mm. everybody tried to steal it from me, buy it from me when I was sure. traveling. He saw the ring. So he's like, oh, I like that. What is that? And it's English writing. What is that? I say, oh, this is my high school ring. Special. Mm. He says, I like that. Give that. Give that to me. He grabs my hand. He tries to pull my ring off my hand. I keep my fist closed. Mm. I'm not going to give it up. My jacket I would have sold but not my ring. Yeah. So I hold it close. We've got this tug of war going on. And finally, I say, okay, I give you good money. I give you money for a ring. Give you money. Yeah. I say, no, no trade, no money. It's special. So he just gets really angry. <laughs> so he stands up, storms back over the door, says something to the big guy at the door. I can't hear. Chop his hand off. <laughs> then walks back over to us. He leans down low. He's standing. We're sitting on the, on the floor. Points his finger right in our face, and he hisses some kind of threat in Arabic. I don't know what he said, but whatever it was, it was serious. So he makes this threat in Arabic, and then he storms out of the room. And so I look at my brother, 
we got to get out of here. Yeah. You know, we got no choice. We got to we got to leave. So it's like take the rope with us. One, yeah. Well, we, <laughs> one, two, three. One and three. We both jump up, run across the room. The big guy at the door is surprised. Doesn't stop us. We run out onto the alley. Keep running through the alley down the main street, and we just keep running. Yeah. Where we're going, we're going to get as far away from him as we can. Sure, to in case you send some <laughs> some of those guys up. Yeah. And now we're back on the streets, Tangier. It's like two in the morning. Uh, we're still no further closer to getting home. We can't really spend any money, so we walk around Tangiers just talking to people about getting back. We finally meet these two guys from Spain who are traveling in, in the Tangiers. They tell us in Gibraltar there's a cheap flight from Gibraltar. You can take a ship from Tangiers to Gibraltar, take a cheap flight to London. Mm. It's like, okay, that's the first news we had of maybe something. So we run through the streets of Tangiers down to the shipyard about 6 in the morning. There's an early ship that's really cheap. There's a later ship that's very expensive. Mm. we got to get on that early ship. So we run up to this big uh, uh, building there for the tickets, and it's just masses of people. And they're fighting one wave of people fighting this way to get their passport stamp, another wave fighting over to this desk over here to get their ticket. So we got to get in the line, push, 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 get our, our passport stamped, exit Morocco, fight, 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 get over, get our ticket just in time, run out onto the ship, get on the ship, and the ship is like a herd of cattle. Sure. There's no sitting place space. It's yeah. every squad standing around. Oh. And we started on the ship ride from Tangiers to Gibraltar, and it's the roughest ship ride I've had, hands, <laughs> hands down by far. Sure. And it's just rocking and rocking, and then you, you see one person start getting sick. Uh, they run oh, to the bathroom, no. another person. Then finally somebody doesn't get to the bathroom, and they oh, throw up. Oh, no. And it's like a chain reaction. Sure. Everybody's getting sick all over. So. It's like in Stand By Me. <laughs> and then the smell hit the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we, uh, I went eventually went down to a lower deck, found a little place I could kind of hide out and sleep. And the, tr the ship finally gets into uh, Gibraltar. Now we don't know if there's a flight. We don't know the price of the flight. We start running through the streets of Gibraltar to try to find out about a, a flight. And Gibraltar is kind of is English, you know, English owned. So it's kind of Western. So it's like almost a reverse culture shock. Mm. People aren't staring at us. Yeah. You know, we had all the stares. <laughs> Look can, at me. I can understand they're speaking. They're speaking some English. Yeah. And we find a little little uh, travel agency. We run in the travel agency. We say, need a ticket. Ticket uh, today. Uh, Gibraltar to London. Yeah. This is before the computer. He opens his, his books. You know, oh, yes, there's a flight today at 2 o'clock. It's like 11 o'clock now. Mm. About three or four hours later is a flight. Yes. We're like, oh, oh great. But he says it's sold out. Oh, there's no seats. No. <laughs> there's no seats for five days. Everything's booked up. It's a little, little airport. So uh, so we're like, oh, man, man. But there's, there's a will, there's a way. So we, we can't sit here. Just, nothing's going to happen. We'll go out to the airport. See we find out at the airport. So we go out on the street, get this taxi driver, this British British fella, nice guy. We tell him our situation, traveling across northern Africa. We've got to get in the flight. He doesn't charge the thing for the fare. Beautiful. Takes to the airport. We get to the airport, run into the airport with our backpack. We've got my beard, dirty clothes on. And we go up to the ticket counter. We ask about a flight or a ticket to uh, London. And the BA, the British airline guy, says, yeah, there's a flight, you know, at 2 o'clock, which we, we kind of knew. But it's sold out. Like oh man, can can we get a you know a standby seat? He said, well, there's many people on standby, but I'll put you at the front of the list. Beautiful. If there's a no show, I'll put you on the flight. So we say, oh thank you, thank you, thank you. So he writes our name at the top. Now we got like three hours, but then we ask him how much is the price, <laughs> and we know we're going to be short. We didn't know we we're going to be short, yeah. but he tells us we have enough money for one ticket 
plus eleven dollars. Yeah. We can't buy two tickets. We buy one ticket and have eleven dollars. So that's our situation. We're Gibraltar. I'm nineteen years old. Mm. Our brother's twenty one. We've been traveling, you know, forty days. So it's like, what do we do? And it's that same thing. Where there's a will, there's a way. You know, we got to get money. We got to get in the flight. We got to get in that flight. So we went across the airport. This little bank area they had set up a, those private banks. You know. And we start talking to a woman there about we must get on a flight. We gotta get back. You know, blah, blah, blah. I got a beard. I have yeah. a shave, long hair, and uh, she's kind of getting scared of us. So finally, she slams the bank closed right in her face. Yeah. She got intimidated. So we run back to the ticket counter. We're asking the guy there about the flight, you know, and he says, "Well, I don't know. We gotta wait, wait." She says, "Stand here. I'll tell you if there's tickets." So we stand always in his eye view, always watching, mm. right in their eye contact, so they can't get away from us. Waiting, waiting. Finally, it's about ten minutes before the flight's gonna leave. They start calling people to board. Then he points to us, calls us yeah. over. He says, I have two tickets. I can give you guys the tickets. We're like, great, but we don't have money. So he's like, wow, I don't know. Yeah. Just, you, got, you got money for this thing, you got a flight. <laughs> so we're like, wow, well, we knew it. We can kind of beg him or talk to him. He says, I'm sorry, I can't. So now we got to decide who's going to take the flight. Sure. We have enough money for one flight and 11 bucks. So my brother, he has a return ticket from London to Detroit that expires like in a week. Mm. So he goes back to London, he can fly back to Detroit. So if he doesn't go back now, he's he'll screwed, lose the yeah. ticket. So he tells me that. So I'm like, man, okay, you take the money. So I give him all my money. Mm. So I've got $11, and this old bottle of Coca-Cola, some stale bread. I'm 19 years old, and I'm in Gibraltar. Yeah. And i got to get back to London. And at that time, Gibraltar and Spain, the border is closed. I can't exit Gibraltar <laughs> and Spain. i got to yeah. ship back to Morocco, then another ship back to Spain, sure. and then travel all of Spain across the channel <laughs> travel to. so it's like I'm at the airport my brother goes away I'm running to get up catch the plane to get on the plane so I'm alone at the airport with, with $11 and it's like I gotta get on that plane mm. I just know it so I start going around the airport I had this little quick spiel I'm, <laughs> my name's Dennis I'm American blah, blah, blah. I just traveled across Algeria Tunisia I need to get a ticket I must get on this plane can you give me I don't know what it was $95 Oh, so you're you're you're. It's not like four bucks short of a ticket. No, you're, no, you're it's eleven dollars like is what I have. Oh, I know, but how how far away is that from the ticket? It's like eighty 90, bucks. Yeah, yeah, another ninety bucks. Oh, no. plus nine, okay, eleven. Okay. So yeah. I'm not even close. So I start going around the airport asking people for uh, just give me money. Yeah. It's like the party in the Red Sea. People are just moving away from me as fast as they can. I come up now. I think the flight's probably gone. It's too late. But I come up across this little guy with a mustache, and he's got a uh, airline uniform on. His name was Stefan Valla. I'll never forget him. I tell him a little story. He's like, yeah, mate, I'll write you a check. They got to take a check because I work for the airline. It's going to bounce, but I'll get you on the plane. Oh. So, so we run across back to the, the same ticket counter talk to the BA guy, the British Air guys. And the British Air guy's like, no, I'm sorry. The, the flight's already on the, on, on the uh, runway. runway. Yeah. It's too late. And Stefan says, you must give him a ticket. Nice. Give this young man a ticket. I'm buying the ticket. So the, so the airline, the BA guy calls the airline. The pilot, yeah. and they stop the plane. Stefan gives him the check. <laughs> nice the check, and then I run out to the airplane with the BA guy, and literally they had to stop the plane on the tarmac, pull out this big uh, stair, uh, stair letter, yeah. and put me on the plane. And they get on the plane just before it leaves. Nice. That's how I got back from that trip. Beautiful. The kindness wow. of a stranger. Wow. I never forgot Stefan. Hell of a journey. I sent him and extra money, a little extra money, and lots of. Kind strangers. Absolutely. When when you're out on on these kind of journeys, absolutely. I, I, I mean, yeah, I can't I can't tell you how many times I've encountered similar kind gestures, and you know we make it seem like pay it forward is a big deal back home, mm -hmm. but 
all my travels all over the world, people have been paying it forward. And I yeah, just go, same, with, wow. same with me. Same with me. Wow. Sometimes the smallest gesture can have so much effect on you. Absolutely. A hundred bucks from a guy who's... Even yeah. like five bucks. Or even sure. like just giving you a ride. A hundred from a guy that's going to bounce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So all of this is documented in The Traveling Man. Yeah, Traveling Man across the Sahara and beyond. It's if, on Amazon. If it's, anybody wants the full story, uh, we'll put the links in the uh, in the post. Yeah, the book reached number uh, 51 Amazon bestsellers in my category. It was number nine on barnesandnoble.com in my category. And then it was selected by President Obama's uh, advisory committee on, on uh, disabilities to be made as a talking book for blind people. So they contacted me, and I submitted you know, the book and gave me rights to it, or to write, uh, produce it. Yeah. And they produced it about two or three years ago. Oh, no way. So it's a talking book. I've been trying. I'd love to listen to it. Yeah. The guy who did the actual recordings contacted me had some questions about some of the pronunciation mm. of the places I went. But they would not give me a free copy. I have to be blind. Huh. Have to be blind. If anybody knows a blind person, would it's actually just start mashing the keypad. Yeah, <laughs> Let me. I think it's in every state state library in the country now. Oh no, available way. for uh, that's incredible for blind people. So. Congratulations! What an yeah. achievement! Yeah, thanks. That's awesome. You published in 2014. Yeah. When did you start the process of writing? How did you decide that mm. now is my time? Everyone asks me, "When are you going to write a book? When are you going to?" Yeah. And I think I'll write a few books, maybe, but. I'm just, it's just not my time right now. I'm just, busy and too much going on. Yeah. Uh, what spurred you on to, to putting the, That's the good, trip on paper? Good good question. Is I, I was the same thing. I was asked all the time. I tell some of my stories occasionally. People I said, oh, don't you just write a book? Don't you write a book? <laughs> mm-hmm. Finally, when I was here in Korea, I told some uh, professors, Korean professors, I don't know how much they understand what I was saying, but when I finished, like, Dennis, you must write a book. Mm-hmm. So I finally thought, okay. I'll write a book. So just like clicked in my mind, so I went back home that night, I just started writing. And I made a commitment to myself, I'm not going to stop until I finish. Because I knew if I stopped, it would take me maybe another month, I'd stop writing. So I wrote every day, at least one hour, between one and five hours. I set up this little back table my wife set up for me to to do my work quiet at the back of the apartment, to do my writing. And I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And I had a great journal, which really helped. To get give me dates, places, yeah. you know, and uh, memories. Also, I sent some postcards. The only contact with my family to my mother. She saved all those postcards, Beautiful. which had some notes that kind of reminded me of other places. Mm-hmm. And so, from those, I pieced together the story. And then I just picked one day. I didn't start the, the story in London when we met up, my brother and I. I started the story about a, halfway through the trip in Algeria at a Bedouin camp in the middle of the Sahara, lost with no money not sure what we're going to do. Nice. And I wake up in the morning at the Bedouin camp, which is true, all true. Uh, and it's, I got a picture of this too. It's a little kind of shack, one little room in the middle of the empty Sahara. And this, this one guy who picked us up hitchhiking drove us there. Hmm. And his friend let us stay. So I woke up, Chris, or not Christmas, but I woke up that morning uh, with the sun coming in the Sahara. And that's where I started the book. Nice. I wake up, Chris, or I wake up that morning. Now I got to get to... Uh, Back to London, how am I going to do it? Sure. And I moved back to the first date and I told wow. the story. Wow. Cool. Did, did you ever feel that, like when when I go home and people always ask what all my crazy travels, and I, I, I feel like half the time people don't give a shit. It's like lip service. Oh, right. how was Central America or Central Asia? Okay, you want to know? I got... 50 hours of stories. You really want to know? No, they want two minutes and then yeah. talk about hockey or baseball or soccer. Um, but the ones who, who who do say, you know, you should write a book, you should write a book, like, really? Is my story really interesting? Like, I don't, I don't, 
think there's that much to it. Do you ever feel like that? Like when when they said that, or you said, "Yeah, I'm going to write it, and I hope it's good, or I don't care." What no, people I think, just. Or, uh, I thought it was an interesting story, and it's like I didn't create the story. It's just something I did. Right. So it's just for my memory. I don't think I'm creative enough to even think of the things mm. that happened. But the story is kind of like a movie. Because we start out in London. We're supposed to have $700 a piece. Mm. I've got $170. He has $185. So we're starting out way behind the A-ball. Yeah. Can we make this trip? And in the back of my mind, I knew we're not going to make it. Yeah. It's kind of new. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. So the whole time we're going across this trip, it's kind of like this deadline. Yeah. you got this deadline and this clock ticking, ticking, ticking yeah. down to the final minute. And it does go down to the final minute, the final day yeah. in that airport in Gibraltar. Mustache. $11 in my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Mustache guy. Yeah. Good old stuff. And, and that's how we got back. You know, I just kind of oh, attention kind of builds throughout the story. Sure. I, I thought it might be interesting for people. And then also, too, some of the culture aspects. Like I experienced Muslim culture at kind of the most basic, natural form. You know, it was very traditional. Men I met, one guy had six wives. He had many, many children. The women were covered. They were kept in the kind of the shadows. Uh, that sense of uh, hospitality. Of if somebody requests, makes a request, sure. you must fulfill it. Yeah. Um, Don't wave at daughters or wives. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, be very respectful of the sure. culture. And the people were just very, very kind in general. Absolutely. Made, made the trip so much easier, so much better. How long did it take you to write it? It took me about um, 15 months. And I wrote, like I said, almost every day. I wrote almost to the very end of the book. And I, I remember the point. I got to the point where I'm in, in, in Gibraltar taking the taxi to the airport to get that last flight. And that point I stopped. I stopped writing mm. and told myself I'm not. And I stopped for like about a month. And I came back and then I finished the book quite quickly after yeah. that. But the thing that was difficult about the book is it took 15 months of writing, but I wrote like 520 pages. I edited it down to 350. Yeah. So after I wrote the whole book, I had to edit, and that was more difficult for me than the, yeah, the second. The yeah. second draft is brutal. cutting down, yeah. cutting down. What can no I cut? No Chat GPT to. Yeah, no, no. Shorten <laughs> this by two hundred words. <laughs> yeah, true. It's amazing nowadays. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you you did a lot of this travel before you were twenty one. Yeah. Now that you're a little bit older, do you still have that sense of adventure? Do you still seek? The, the thrill and the, the yeah. adventure of traveling a lot, or have you slowed down a bit? Or I've slowed down, but I, st I still have that same sense of adventure. And when I when I came to Korea, I started living in Korea. You know, I did some traveling. I took that one trip for like 120 days when I first got here, and traveled all through Asia, Tunisia, or not, uh, but Brunei, Indonesia, Hong Kong. Um, but then I was living in Korea for a while just to get some adventure. I started riding motorcycles. Mm. And a buddy of mine, <laughs> a buddy of mine had a motorcycle. And I had a motorcycle back when I was in America. And he said he had a group of guys who rode almost every week. Mm. So I met up with him. and We'd meet, we'd meet in Kimei and go from Kimei all across the country. Beautiful. And I took probably 15, at least 15, 20 major trips, overnight trips. Oh, awesome. We'd leave Kimei, go up to Andong, go up to North Korea, go to Soraksan, Chilisan. Sure. And so that was kind of a, a way for me to get some of that adventure back. Yeah. Was riding the motorcycles. And, I uh, did a small trip up the east, uh, up the east coast, and it's hmm. still one of really good memory. I, I yes. it's the only trip I took with more than one person on a bike, and oh, it was yeah. it was great. Yeah, you go would, in, stop, make all the stops along the way. Stop along the way, get some yeah. and really meet the nice. local people, and sure. Does, does your wife or daughter share the the same sense of adventure? Have you instilled that travel and adventure sense in your daughter? Or? I would say somewhat. My daughter's quite adventurous. She's very competent. You know, she can handle handle things, and and uh, my wife is quite adventurous, but she's a little more feminine, kind of more uh, nervous about like things. Mine. 
Yeah, just to kind of in general. <laughs> but they're, she's been very supportive. My parents were always very supportive, too, when I was young. Like when I was 16, you know, leaving for two months driving across the country. And then all this trap. But they didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> if, they, if they knew exactly what I was doing in a lot of these situations, I think they would have much more sure. worried about it. But that's part of it, isn't it? And I think part of it, the parents, yeah, you'd be worried. I'd be worried if my daughters went, I think having daughters is different. Yeah. If I had sons, I'd be a lot less worried. Yep, I think so um, But part of it, like, I, I, there was internet when I went, um, 2003 to Africa or 2002. But uh, it was still, it was an email once a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. A phone call once every six weeks. But... I think same if they knew what was really going on. I mean, my dad ended up coming to visit after, and he was a a, a high up government guy yeah. in Canada, and and I think it kind of shocked the shit out of him. <laughs> and uh, but that was like the the light version. Again, we I mean it was it was miles and miles away from what he was used to doing, mm. um, but. It was still bucket showers and cold uh, water. I mean, but it was still the light version. I mean, we were doing cra- much crazier stuff. But yeah, they don't want to know that stuff, right? Yeah, my my father had a good life. He he was an FBI for many years. He did counterintelligence with oh, the Soviets, and he used to tell me a lot of stories, you know. And and uh, and something he told me too is like sometimes Dennis, when you do something, life is not safe. It's not always safe. Sure. If you try something new, do something different, it might be a little bit dangerous. It's safe, it's boring. Yeah, but you got to do it. <laughs> but everywhere, every, I mean, part of the developed countries have the illusion of safe, but it, I yeah. mean, it's, uh, it, there's danger in everything. Man. Sure, sure. Danger in everything. So if uh, what, is, what remains on the bucket list? I mean, you've been to a lot of places. What, what uh, is still out there? I would like to go. I haven't been to really to Latin America, except for uh, Mexico. I had some friends I went to school with, you know, from Latin America. So I'd like to travel uh, Latin America. I've done Europe. I've done quite a bit of Asia, Iron Curtain, a uh, bit of Northern Africa, maybe also South Africa. You know, I was in Northern Africa, but not the South. Do d- Does your sense of travel change? I always say, like, you know, I can travel more, more of what I've been to Western Europe, done a little bit, but mm. I, I, my, my, and I don't know if it's a, an unwise way to express it, but it's not changing. Uh, I like to see the places that are still oh, kind of unchanged raw, and, raw. And, and raw without the development and stuff. And I can ride the Greyhound bus with a coffee when I'm 60, mm-hmm. 65, and, you know, see this or see that. The Eiffel Tower didn't go, it's not going anywhere, mm-hmm. you know. No, I'm just, so, anyway. so I think, like, when I'm, you know, now I'm still young and I can, mm-hmm. I still have that sense of adventure and the, the ruggedness for the squat toilets and some <laughs> of the, the crazy shit. Um, do, do you feel like that? Like when I'm older, I'm going to just go to the resorts and, and relax well, I, I or this kind and that? Of, or? Kind, of, kind of a mix. You know, when I was younger, it was always adventure. It was just do it. I'm going to go do it, whatever it was, no matter what the cost was, how I was going to do it or danger. Now I'm a little more uh, careful what I do. And then having a wife, if I travel with her, it's just a different different environment. Yeah. You know, I'm single. I can just, it doesn't matter. I can sleep outside. I can sleep. Do whatever you want. Yeah. I can have a loaf, a loaf of bread. will last me five weeks if I really need to. Yeah. You know. <laughs> just met an awesome guy from, from Holland who had cycled to Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. We met him in Uzbekistan, and my wife was just floored that this guy was riding a bike in sandals <laughs> from the Netherlands all the way to Uzbekistan. He was going to continue on the Silk Road all the way to China. Wow. wow. And, uh, and then we met a family in a Hummer. A Russian guy in a Hummer, 
and it was sitting outside the mosque or the mausoleum where we were and it was this great big yellow hummer and it, like this is the weirdest thing to see in Uzbekistan I mean it's it's mostly older older cars and a few Chevys mm-hmm. and uh, he had a map on the back of all the places they've been oh, wow. and we said let's let's hang out a little bit and see if this guy comes out like maybe he's in here looking at the mausoleum too and uh, sure enough 20 30 minutes later this guy came out and then two kids came out and I was like holy shit you're doing this with two young kids and he'd wow. been in this Hummer for 10 years. 10 years from Moscow 46 countries or something 10 years and he said he's got 10 more years and his it's wife is his family yeah wow. and his and my wife was like this isn't my style I would never do this and then I started talking to him and he said his wife and kids go on the road with him for two months mm-hmm. and go back to Moscow for two months mm-hmm. on the road for two mm-hmm. months so when his wife and kid are coming he tries to make sure they're not in any place too crazy or right, too wild right. and then once they're gone he does the, the crazy stuff yeah um but he's driven this... So imagine the attention, and I've had similar experiences in parts of Africa. But imagine driving a giant yellow Hummer in, like, Bangladesh <laughs> yeah. and, and these countries where they, you know, they've never seen anything. No. He's on the news. He's in the newspapers. Now I'm on his Instagram there. He's, like, famous just because yeah. he drives this giant yellow machine. Sure. And I thought, no one's hijacked you. No one's tried to get it. No one's... Yeah. Like, what you, you, you drive that? through a border with this shit? Yeah. And he's like, well, yeah, the, the craziest border crossing was Uzbekistan. He said, Tw- uh, he was there 12, 13 hours. At the border? Yeah. And he, they said he made him empty every single item out of his truck. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they itemized everything he's got. Yeah. And wow. uh, Uzbekistan's a little bit more strict government-controlled place. Um, but just different ways of traveling. And, and it, you know, I think I compromised on this trip. Uh, mm-hmm. to accommodate my wife and kids and that's going to require more mm-hmm. compromisation as, as we keep going but my wife is also supportive and, and adventurous in that way that she would never ever do the things we've done without mm-hmm. without me mm-hmm. but I've also had to give up you know eating a loaf of bread for a week and, and mm-hmm. funny you say that the Dutch guy was sitting there on the side of the thing by himself in the shade long hair big beard with that big thing of Uzbek bread it's like two pounds and it would last me a week. <laughs> He's just sitting there nibbling on his bread. Like this guy's on like three dollars a day, probably. Yeah. And uh, there's something and, romantic about that. And yeah, went over yeah. and talked to him, and he's like, "Yeah, usually I eat one loaf of bread for a couple days, and this and that." I was like, "Dude, that's what I love it. Yeah. How old are you? That's how I used to travel. Bread and cocoa." And uh, and my wife <laughs> was like, water, so bread "She was so in awe and, and in admiration of this guy and what he's done, but doesn't want to do it." But mm-hmm. and I was like, "Yobo." <laughs> that was that's what I did not on a bike I was doing other wild stuff but that's how I used to do mm-hmm. it and she's like it's so amazing but it's so crazy and it's so yeah, yeah. mysterious but I don't want to try it and <laughs> so yeah I, I just wonder as as we age if uh, we get into more kind of I'm a little bit a little bit more I still love adventure I, I used to love the feeling of just not knowing what was ahead of me uh-huh. and that's why I didn't have naturalists at the time mm. I didn't really know what was next just the next town yeah. when I traveled across the Sahara it was always the next town yeah. I never knew the name wow. I just got to get a bus <laughs> to the next town I couldn't yeah I you know. That's that's totally out of uh, crazy for our generation to think about. Now there's yeah. so much information. Oh my god, it's everywhere. so much technology at the, your where, fingertips. Where would be the place that doesn't have that? Where, where could you go that doesn't doesn't? It? I was just in uh, the the north and and east of Almaty, in uh, or sorry, yeah, north and east of Almaty and in Kyrgyzstan, up in Songkhol. No electricity, 
no internet connection, nothing. I was like completely disconnected for four or five days in each of those places, and I was like, "This is there's something cool about this." Yeah, there's something. There's something. Like could, they have a generator to turn on at night. Yeah. So I could I could charge my phone so mm-hmm. I could take pictures, um, but no connection, no. And same thing. Like I was like, "We got to get out of here on Monday, dude." And he's like, "Well, we'll try and figure something out." I was like, "Well, what are you gonna do?" Like. Morse code with rocks through the villages back to the town. Like you, most people have a rain. They got they stay two nights, mm-hmm. and the guy stays. The driver stays and brings you out. Yeah. But we were staying four nights, and no driver is going to stay four nights. They go back three four hours to the village, and he said, "Well, we'll we'll try and make sure somebody's coming or going. Mm-hmm. Tell somebody that." But it's kind of that mystery of: it, Are we going to get in? Are we going to get out? Do we get? Are we going to make it to our next thing? Or yeah, yeah. Um, but where, where do you think would be a, a place like that that doesn't isn't isn't as connected? I don't know nowadays. The last place maybe was like in Vietnam when I entered when I went to Vietnam, which just thirty five years ago. They just opened, and there was just one little street in, in uh, Hanoi where they had a couple hotels for foreigners, and that was kind of it. And then uh, I remember when I was there, I, I wanted to take it to kind of discover the place, so I rented a little scooter, a little motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So I do is when I when I new place, I'd ride the motorcycle around in circles around my hotel, bigger circles, to kind of reconnaissance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. recognize some landmarks. I kind of find my, this is before GPS or anything, sure. you know. So I took off for the day on the little scooter. I rode like nine, ten hours all through the city, on the country. I remember I was at this one little stand having some little drink. And there's these four Vietnamese guys doing construction work across the street. This is back when I was in shape, you know. They came across the street. They wanted to arm wrestle me. Yeah. So I arm wrestled the three guys. And then I rode for the rest of the day, and I got back to go back to my hotel in the evening. Now it's getting kind of dark, and I'm a little bit nervous being American because there's still that stigma of the war, you know. Sure. I went to the, the, the uh, war museum, which is really horrific. Yes. And uh, so I'm trying to find my hotel. And I get back to the area, and I'm going around and around my scooter. I just can't find the hotel. I know I'm close. I recognize some landmarks. And there's thousands of scooters. There's no cars. <laughs> it's all scooters and bicycles. And I'm going around, and I go around one turn, and there's this little Vietnamese soldier with a big rifle, the old uniform, <laughs> He w- looks at me, tells me to come over to him. So now I got a split second decision: do I go go to him or I keep riding? Mm. Well, I think if I keep riding, he's probably going to walkie-talkie. There's other soldiers; sure. they'll track me down. So I pull over to the side of the road, and there's all these people going around watching this drama with this foreigner. I sit on my bike. He's about ten meters away. He's expecting me to get off my bike and walk over to him. There's no way I'm leaving that bike. Sure. That's the only security I have. Once mm. I leave that security, I'm totally under his control. Yeah. So I sit on the bike, just sitting there, looking at him. He looks at me. He's getting angry. So he starts walking back over to me, and he speaks in this really harsh voice, broken English. You have violated the laws of Vietnam. You must come with me to my commander now. Yeah. He turns starts walking away. He's expecting me to follow him. There's no way I'm leaving that bike. Uh-huh. So I'm sitting on the bike. He walks about four or five steps, stops, turns around. I'm not following him. Now he's really angry. Mm. So he starts walking back over towards me. I got my hands on the bike. I've not turned it off. I'm not going to turn it off. I'm not going to get off it. And I always, kept, like I said, I kept money for bribes. So I do is I have a little wad of money with like a $10 bill on the outside and like five or six $1 inside. Yeah. So I pulled it out. It looks like 20, you know, big $10 bills, big money. It's really like 15 bucks, yeah. 15 bucks. So I had that in my pocket. I always have that safe, which thank God I had. So I'm on the bike here. He walks over to me. I put my hand in the, hand in the pocket, 
pull out the money with the money sticking out of my hand. There's all these people watching, so I do it very quietly. Put my hand on the handle here like this, look at him, and I say, I'll pay you now. I'll pay the, fi the ticket now. I'll yeah. pay you. He doesn't say anything. He looks at me, looks away, and he casually puts his hand over top of my hand and takes the money out of my hand. Sure. And as soon as he takes that money, I fry up that bike. I say, okay, we're good. And I take off. Yeah. And I got kept driving around. But thank God I had that money. Yeah. I left that bike with him. I don't know where it ended up. Good, uh, <laughs> you know. Now, most recently, you started a YouTube channel? Yeah, YouTube channel. What is the direction? What is the inspiration of that? And where, okay. where's it going to go? It's called uh, Dennis. My name Dennis, the Traveling Man. Mm -hmm. It's on YouTube. Just type in Dennis, the Traveling Man. And uh, the inspiration is I have, I have all this experience. I do a lot of lecturings. I do some, you know, conferences sometimes speaking. And um, people often have a lot of questions of me. One big topic is always safety. How do you stay safe being 18, 19 years old, traveling around the world? And, and, and then other things, my experiences. So I thought I'd do a YouTube channel and just share some of my experiences for, for people, young people or anybody, um, to maybe learn from what I did, my yeah. mistakes, what I did right. So I started the channel just a few weeks ago, put out one video, just kind of introducing myself, my background, what I've done. And now I'm going to have it like a, every week a different video. Cool. The first video I put out was for safety. Mm. One safety tip is called uh, situational awareness, yes. which is actually our American military is trained. Also, the FBI, CAA. My father was FBI, and he was trained in that. He always told me when I was young, Dennis, always have good situational awareness. Sure. It's a very simple but effective idea. It just means you're always aware of your situation. Where are you? Who's around you? Yep. You identify any potential threat or danger. Yep. Well, these two guys over here are going to be careful. Uh, you identify your exit points. If I walk into a hotel lobby, oh, there's a door here, door here. If I go to the train station, my exit points. Yeah. Also, you identify any safety. Where can you get help if you need help? Oh, there's this shop over here. There's this man here. And it just became a habit when I was traveling. Anywhere I go, I'm just evaluating the situation. Yeah. It takes very little time. And then the, the key is when you're aware of a danger, and usually you're not sure if something's dangerous. You meet somebody, you go into a bus, you go into maybe a hotel, and you think that it's not, not safe. Mm. But you don't know. Mm. But you don't wait. The longer you wait, the more your danger increases. Yeah. And then also you just got to take action, leave the situation. Yeah. Leave that hotel room, walk away from that guy in the street. Curiosity killed the cat. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't, uh... exactly. And then you're good. No yeah. drama, no problem. Yeah. And uh, so that was my first uh, safety tip with situational awareness. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so I put that video. I'm going to put out more videos about just uh, travel, safety, overcoming obstacles, sure. kind of life lessons for, sure. for people in who, general. Who is the target audience? Uh, target pr primarily kind of younger people, maybe 20s, 30s, 40s. Mm. Americans, anyone? Yeah, anyone. Korean students? Anyone. Koreans part, part, partially, but anybody yeah. uh, can, I think, uh, benefit from the, uh, the information. And also, too, even like families, like five, five children. I, I talk to my daughter's situational awareness. Sure. Other one, good habit is... Uh, talked about your gut instinct mm. follow your gut instinct if you got an instinct you got a feeling somebody's bad mm. this is a bad situation don't wait leave yeah. leave before something happens Situa yeah, situational awareness I mean super important especially these days when you see people walking around everyone's no one's even looking up all onto their phone never yeah never mind exactly. checking exit points like check Okay, the person in front of you. How, yeah, many, how many times on this trip my kids go, how do you know that? What do you mean? How, where, how, well, you didn't see this when we came in? No. 
even my wife, and she says, how, how do you know? I said, well, you didn't see the lady boy over there? How, how do you know? Well, this, for the more you do it, the exactly. more you see, the more you know. You didn't know this guy's trying. She, she doesn't like when I, when I negotiate or haggle or whatever. And I'm like, because the guy over there is 19. He's trying to impress his dad or his uncle or whatever. He has to make sales. This guy's old. He's a hard bargainer, this, that. You got to be able to do this and that. How do you know that? Well, because you just, it's just experience. The more yeah. you do it, the more you know. You got sixty vendors here. You can probably pick out which two will give you the best price. He said, "There's levels. There's levels sure. to to travel." And she'd be she'd be upset that I, you know, the guy said this. She's like, "Whatever, that's a good price." No, no. no. I walk over to him and I say, "Listen, two dollars less here. I'll give you this for that." And he goes, "Sure." He's like, why didn't that guy want to argue or whatever? Because like, yeah. he knows. He knows I know the price. I know what I'm doing. I have the same the confidence. The fake confidence, right? Hey, this isn't my first time at the market, but it is. Yeah. I already found out the price from three other guys, or, or a rough estimate of the price. You might take me for 1% more, but not 10 or 200 mm-hmm. or 2,000 like the French or the Italians that were there. And <laughs> it, it, it takes some effort. It takes some some uh, time and some conscious effort to, exactly. to know. And, and just, lots of people just like floating through and exactly. not being aware of anything. Oblivious. And oblivious. Yeah. I see so, so many, many people. There's some people I traveled with, they, this before they, GPS got their map out, they're pouring their money out, all this bought of money, they got their expensive rings, and they're walking, and there's all these bad guys are just focusing in on them, waiting for the opportunity, yeah. get them alone, and they have no sense of it. Yeah. The my thing wife, is, you can remove yourself from danger before it happens. Sure. If my wife ready. had her earrings on, I was like, take those off. Yeah. I told you not to bring any jewelry. <laughs> yeah. I'm going around like a hobo, and my wife's got earrings and a wedding ring on. I said, just yeah. take that stuff off. We're not bringing that, man. I had a student who's going to New York, and she's like, do you have any advice? I said, just don't look like a tourist. Yeah. Yeah. Find out where you want to go Fit and in, walk man. there like Fit you in. know... What you're doing, don't take out the map and look exactly. around. And What I know. tell my students, too, is I said there'll be some situations where you're not going to be confident. You're mm-hmm. not going to feel strong. You might be really scared. And I had that when I traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Inside, I feel really uncomfortable. Sure. But you never show it. Sure. And the, the expression, fake it until you make it. Yeah, yeah. If you're not confident, you're not sure, act like you're confident. Act like you're sure. sure. Stand like you're strong. <laughs> and just fake it. And people will believe you, and later I, you'll become. I think about my early teaching career here when I'd go in and negotiate yeah. a contract, and like I had no idea about anything. But we never taught a class. <laughs> He's going like, yeah, no, this is this is how much we make, and it, it, it totally works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, very much so. <laughs> all good times. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to fake the confidence all the time. I, I fake my Korean so much that Koreans think they're bad listeners, not I'm a bad speaker. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you got Topic Level 6 and you can speak fluently, but you're shy and you're hesitant and you're, uh, uh. So they just say, ah, oh, you're wasting my time. You're, your I Korean's students, not good enough. I tell students about this guy. Like, he just, just goes in. I just speak 100 miles an hour and they go, oh, shit, I'm sorry, I... I didn't understand that. He's got 150 <laughs> words that he can mix and mingle just and just say them confidently. Yeah. Wow, is Korean so good? Are like, yeah, you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Don't it's, ask it, me it a works. follow-up question. It works, though, man. You it go does. in and a strong handshake and you know, say, oh, wow. <laughs> Dude, they, <laughs> so I like, just feel bad for the guy whose Korean is very good but has no confidence. <laughs> yeah. And they talk like a mouse. And, yeah, exactly. And I'm like, well, exactly. I can trump you. Your Korean is 100 times better than mine, but... You got no mojo. Mm-hmm. It's you <laughs> nice. got to have it. Uh, you got a wild, a wild resume here. I just yeah. maybe before we wrap up, I, I want to ask about this prison lecturer. It sounds mm. interesting. I like that you said you took the job because you didn't. It wasn't for money or you no. needed. I take a couple of those jobs here. So does Bry. 
that are just weird, interesting, cool, intriguing. So you take it to kind of learn and, and maybe yeah. grow as a person or get out yeah. of your comfort Too zone. Yeah, challenge, challenge myself. Uh, Max Security Prison Lecture. What what does that well, it was entail? Well, it was in Michigan. It was uh, Jackson State Prison, which is a big, old, old historic prison. <laughs> Situa- <laughs> situation awareness oh, yeah. in the showers. <laughs> it was the uh, <laughs> biggest walled prison in the world. So I was, I didn't, even, I didn't even apply for the job. They heard from me from some speaking I did or something. They contacted me from the prison because the previous instructor didn't last. Mm. He, he left. And so this guy, his name was Delvin, contacted me. I went to his office, talked to me, said, you know, uh, we'd like to maybe hire you for teaching in the uh, business classes to the prisoners. And I'm like, well, yeah. Is it safe? He said, well, sometimes. <laughs> and then he said... Uh, Sign this waiver. You know, yeah, exactly. And then he said, I remember him telling me, which is kind of that fake until you make it. He said, just don't... You just always show confidence and strength. Don't be... Don't show aggression, but never show weakness. And he said, when you go to your class, you just always act confident and you act sure, but not aggressive. And he said, if you don't, if you show weakness oh, or hesitate, crush you. they'll walk all over you and you yeah. you're not going to last. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll take the uh, job. So I started teaching there at night. And I remember the first time I went to the prison. Now, it's a big, big, intimidating, old, old, huge, huge prison with a huge wall. So I got my little business suit. I'm about 31 or whatever, early 30s. And my briefcase to go teach. I have no idea what to expect. Um, I've got this little pin alarm. You pull a pin, it has a siren. Yeah. Get help. <laughs> I, took, I took that out of my back, back, back or my back, uh, briefcase. I walk down the corridor. They got the big iron gates. <sighs> Open the gates. I walk into no man's land. They <sighs> close the gates. There's two guards there. They sh- sh- search me. They put me through the metal detector. Give me my, my briefcase back. They say, okay, this man will take you to your class. So we walk through this big, huge prison, this hallway, maybe about 100 meters. We walk towards the end of the hallway. It's almost empty, and there's a big iron gate opening. So he's got to get it, opens up the gate, and now it's open to this huge courtyard. There must be 300 prisoners oh, milling about Lord. in the courtyard, you know. Get them. Fresh meat. <laughs> exactly. He opens that gate, so I walk out. I assume he's going to walk with me to my class, escort me. No way. I walk out. <laughs> he stays inside. He says, your class is over there, central cell blocks, across the courtyard. Oh, my God. And he points across this huge courtyard, and he <laughs> slams the door. <laughs> so I'm standing out in the courtyard by myself, first time I've been in the prison, with my little suit and my briefcase. And I've got to walk 100, 200 meters across the courtyard to the cell block. So I walk across there. It's all these big guys and shoulder to shoulder I walk back there and there's this female guard and she's really nervous and scared which makes me feel nervous and scared and she's like oh here I'm sticking my name and so forth she checks my name okay you're on the third floor your class third floor she opens the gate for the back uh, cell block slams it closed she says go up that stairway third floor so I'm like okay is a guard going to come with me escort me no no, go there. So I walk up the stairway, three floors, tight little stairway. Later, I found out from my prisoners, it's one of the most dangerous places in the prison. Because you're shoulder to shoulder, locked in with a group of men. They come up behind you with their, with their knife or whatever they got, their shank, yeah. and slit your throat. And you're on the ground dying, and they walk away, and just nobody knows what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said it happens all the time. I didn't know that at the time, thank God. Yeah. So I walk up this three stair, stairway, get to the third floor, and I'm looking for the guard. 
where's the guard going to, you know, help me out? Mm. I walk in this old, old, old room floor, and this big old floor. I walk to the end of the floor, and there's these two trustees, prisoners who handle things. They say, here, here's your class list. Your room is over here, this room. So I'm like, okay, where's the guard? They say, on the first floor, that woman. That's the oh, guard out no. there. So now I'm like, wow, okay. So I walk into the classroom. It's a big old old room and uh, set up my stuff and got my book there and the desk. And the prisoners start coming in. There's about 20, 25 guys. There's a lot of mix of guys, mix of races, a lot of big guys working all the time. Um, they come in and the class starts and I start teaching. You know, I'm talking. Mm. I start getting a little bit comfortable. Mm. Oh, okay, it's not so bad. I think I can do this, you know. And I'm teaching. Well, after about 20 minutes in the class, this one big big dude, big black guy, he just stands up from his desk, walks across the room, and he makes a point of bumping my shoulder yeah. as he walks past the room, and he leaves the room. So I'm kind of shocked. What was that? But I remember <laughs> what, what Delvin told me. Don't show fear. Yeah. You must stand up. You must, you know, show strength. So I just get myself kind of composed. He comes back to enter the room. Punch him right in the face. <laughs> close. As soon as he walks up to the door, I walk right up to him. He's much taller than me, so I'm looking up at him. I just say in a strong voice, not too aggressive, but a strong voice, don't ever leave my classroom again. If you leave my classroom, you're never coming back in. Yeah. Just ask, and it's no problem. He looks at me, kind of shrugs, goes, Okay, boss, I got you. Yeah, yeah. He walked in my head. Just no testing you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no problem with him. Oh, cool. But it was an interesting experience. There's such a. Uh, some of those guys were very charming, very friendly. I'd forget I was in prison, forget who they were. Yeah. Some were just guys you just would never want to be alone with. Sure. Never. Uh, should never be back in, in society. Wow. Then. There was these two guys, remember, a little bit older guys in my class I had a couple of times. One was a Hispanic. One was a, a American, white American. And they were both just really kind of humorous guys, always kind of quick-witted and joking. Mm. And they, they liked me as a teacher. They'd been in a couple of my classes. So I'm getting kind of friendly with them. I'm thinking they're more of his friends. I forget I'm in the prison sometimes. Mm. So at the end of one of the classes, that they never talked about what they did mm. to get in there. At one of the classes, I had some downtime. So I'm in the classroom waiting. And they're kind of talking back, back and forth. And the one guy asked the Hispanic guy, Hey, Max, why are you in here? You're so articulate. Why are you in here? And he started talking about what he did. He'd, he'd got involved with huge drug deals. He worked for uh, some kind of uh, agency that did uh, touring trips and got caught with millions of dollars of drugs. <laughs> and then the other guy, this white guy, has got this pockmarked face with this greasy hair. Funny guy. Mm. But they ask him, hey, man, what are you in here for? And there's just a complete change. Mm. This friendly, happy face just goes, I killed that motherfucker. I killed his son. I would have killed his daughter. If I get oh. back out, I'm going to kill her too. <laughs> and he's talking about a police officer, police oh. chief, that I guess arrested him or did something. He, yeah. It was kind of a famous case. I didn't know about it at the time. He'd be uh, he'd be a hero in jail, wouldn't he? But he went back yeah. and, and killed, killed into his house, held a big, was a big uh, standoff for hours, ended up killing, I think, the... The chief and the daughter. Wow. The son got out. But I hear these things that these guys did. Yeah. And I'd sometimes just be shocked because they're kind of, they come across as kind Normal of dudes, friendly, yeah. humorous kind of sure. guys. And they they talk about different experiences. You see a whole other person come out. Wild. But Wild. it was a different world. Whew, no doubt. There was one guy that got, got paroled, I'll say real quick, that was in the prison. He was a famous famous killer, mm. serial killer in Michigan. And he, he had been arrested for killing... I don't know how many people, women. And he was in prison for a long sentence. Well, he got paroled somehow. So he was paroled from Jack State Prison. 
He left prison. Within three days, he was stopped by the police driving a car because the light was out, and there's two dead women in the back of his car. Oh, my so God. So they're bringing him back into Jackson Prison just a week, <laughs> a week later. Oh, my God. All my prisoners were talking about him. Yeah. They told me, Dennis, he's dead. As soon as he enters the population, he's dead. We're going to kill him. Oh. We're all going to deny parole because of what happened to him. Yeah. Now, all the parole boards under all this pressure, they're not giving any parole. Wow. So all these guys are pissed off. They got parole coming up. Uh, this killing. So they, they had to keep him in the separate, in the middle of the prison. There was a separate, separate block, cell block, yeah. that was just locked down. And I see these guys walking through prison, their legs, their arms chained, yeah. guard with them. They're in the cell 23 hours a day. They're yeah. total isolation. Yeah. Wow. They're just complete predators. Insane. But uh, it was interesting for me because there were so many different guys in there. And there's some of the big, big guys work out all the time. They're tough and they're just angry and they're scared to death of them. And there's some little guys, scrimpy little guys. And then there's some older guy. There's one older guy, like, look like Santa Claus, except the skinny Santa Claus. Yeah. But I found out he had massacred his family Jeez. like 40 years before. And he's from a little town up in northern Michigan, northern part of Michigan. Wow. And uh, um, so just a variety of people. The most scary guy I saw in prison wasn't a big, tough-looking gangster guy. It was a short little white guy mm-hmm. with a scraggly hair. And he came in my class one time, and I just saw him and I made eye contact. And as soon as I made eye contact, I didn't want to be near him. Yeah. This guy is stone cold, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing in those eyes. So I made a point of it. I'm never near him. If he's in the classroom, I'm on the other side of the classroom. Sure. If I happen to see him in the hallway, I, I stop walking in the hallway, I go somewhere else. Yeah. And so I was always aware of this guy. Anyways, I've been teaching now for quite a while at the prison there, a few mm. different uh, programs. And I walk into my classroom one time to start class. It's a little bit early. So I open the door. I don't see him in the room. I walk in. Behind the door, he's sitting in a desk. <laughs> him alone. Oh, jeez. And he looks over at me. I make eye contact again. He's got that vicious, malignant grin mm. looking at me. So I know I can't walk out. I can't show fear. So I just walk into the classroom as far away from him as I can, go to my desk. I don't look at him. I got my back to him. He's waiting across the room. I just keep busy with papers on my desk, shuffling, yeah. hoping somebody's to come in the room. Then I walk over to the chalkboard, take out an eraser just to keep busy, and start erasing the chalkboard on the, on the board. Once I get to the other end of the classroom, or the room, not the classroom, the room, on the board is that sign of Satan. Pentagon? Pentagon. Yeah. In fingerprint. It wasn't there when I came in the room. When I walked into that room, was doing the shufflings, not looking at it, he must have got up and put that on the board. Jeez. It was a message nice. or whatever. So I see that on the board. I'm just like, whoa. Huh. I just erase it. Mysterious fellow. I resigned today. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you why I resigned. I want to hear it real quick. Yeah. My father asked me to. I've been teaching there for a couple of years, and I'd, I'd hear these stories, and there's there's just some tremendous violence. There's also some just really interesting guys who are trying to better themselves. But what happened was there was a coordinated hit. I heard of a lot of different hits while I was teaching. But there was a coordinated hit on, on three administrative staff and one of the instructors. The same time, the same day. Right. Almost the same hour. And they did the shanking. And the prisoners were caught on the top of the roof, I guess, of the prison, throwing bloody clothes off the roof. Well, somehow that news got out of the prison, because most of the things I heard about in prison never reached the media. Yeah. Well, there was a news story, four people attacked at Jack State Prison today, uh, three dead, one in emergency care. My dad saw that. He called me up and said, yeah. you got to stop. Yeah, yeah. Please stop. So now you're currently located in Busan, 
working at a university. Yes. Uh, what else do you have on the go? Well, I teach uh, lecture classes, English classes, uh, composition, speaking classes to university students. I also work with what's uh, a special program for students going on internships overseas to America, mm-hmm. Vietnam, uh, Japan. I teach that program, work in that program, which I really enjoy. I also do some consulting here. I've given a lot of uh, training seminars to professors, Korean professors teaching English. Also some business seminars. I used to give those to uh, the business departments and mm. classes uh, uh, as well. And now I, got, I have my book, Traveling Man, Across the Sahara and Beyond. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's worldwide, basically. Um, and then also I just started a YouTube channel. Uh, Den- tra- uh, travel Man Dennis, mm-hmm. Travel Man Dennis, with putting out videos, showing uh, kind of life lessons, sharing some of my experience from uh, business and other things awesome. travel. Awesome. Lots to share. Lots yeah. of experience. Sure. Yeah, a lot of experience, you know. And when I was young, I had a few people that kind of helped me out. Like, when I, I started a business when I was early, after I worked in Capitol Hill, I worked in Capitol Hill mm. for a few years. I was legislative correspondent for a U.S. congressman, which was very competitive to get the job. Mm-hmm. I did an internship first. I was working like 40, 50 hours a week, making about $25 mm. a week. I did that for a few months. From that, I got a full-time position as a legislative correspondent for a congressman. Mm-hmm. The congressman I worked for was a real good guy. He was on the Armed Services Committee. So we had a lot of dealings with the U.S. military, with the CIA, um, the Pentagon, the White House. So I had a very high security clearance. And I had to get clearance to get the job. And then later, I was doing a good job for the congressman. So the chief of staff talked to me. He said, Dennis, I want to reward you. I'm going to send you on a trip to a NORAD command center. Cool. Which I think is mm-hmm. in Cheyenne, Jackson. Uh, it's built into a mountain. Oh, I've, yeah, I've seen that before. Incredible technology. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's built on springs. So yeah, yeah. they said when they built it, it could almost absorb a direct hit from nuclear weapons. That's like a, I, I've seen that from, uh, there's like a, Discovery Channel documentary. Oh, I've probably. seen that before. It's wild. Yeah. Wow. It, it monitors every airspace of Canada and America, anything yeah. in and out. He said, I'm going to send you there. I want to send you there for like a four-day trip uh, for the congressman, part of the you know Armed Service Committee. But you might have a problem getting the security clearance. You've done too much traveling and everything. So he said, just wait. So I waited about another month or so in six weeks, and he came back to me. He said, Dennis, uh, I'm not sending to NORAD a Command Center, but I'm going to send you on a, a tour of U.S. military bases. Fort Benning, Fort Knox, Fort Pendleton, uh, as part of the uh, uh, Armed Service Committee staff, which is like powerful. If you're on yeah. the Armed Service Committee staff, all the money for the U.S. military comes out of the committee. Wow. So I, me and about five or six or seven other staff members were flown out of Andrews Air Force Base, flown to the military base. The general of the base would come out, I'm like 25 years mm. old, meet us, take us into a private briefing room tell us everything they're doing, what, what they need, their needs for military, what their plans and strategies are. Yeah. Then they take us to their training facilities. So I shot the M16. Oh. I trained with the 181st uh, Airborne Division, where they trained. They had these stilts set up where they would uh, fake parachute. you jump off and you have to land and hit, you know, make your points of contact. So I trained with them, huh. uh, drove the M1 tank, which was kind of cool. It's almost like a motorcycle. Mm. Inside, it's like steering like a motorcycle. Oh, no way. And drove the M1 tank, and then they showed us uh, displays of the tank's capabilities. And during that time, I went to three different air, uh, military bases, big military bases. And at that time, they were having military games going on. So it's one part of the country, one part of the country were actually fighting a you know, fake war. Mm-hmm. So I'd meet one general, take me into their barracks or whatever, and tell me their strategies, what they're doing. And then they fly us by Black Hawk helicopter into the war zone 
fake war zone mm. to actually witness what's going on. And I remember during that uh, that tour, that trip, I had to write a report for the Armed Services Committee when I got back. They kept talking about this technology that would really help them pinpoint their weapons. They said we could send a missile, we could send a tank, you know, shell mm. to an exact location. And I'm pretty sure it was GPS. Yeah, yeah. It was prior to GPS becoming yeah. Becoming huh, such a probably, thing, yeah. but I remember them talking about that so much that that was the main thing they were kind of lobbying, wow. uh, lobbying for. Wow! And uh, so it was an interesting, uh, interesting job. Absolutely. He also, met, the congressman I worked for, also put me in charge of his advisory committee on foreign policy. Hmm. So I'm this young 25, 20, whatever I was, 26 year old guy, um, and his advisory committee was made up of some of the top people in America mm. on foreign policy. We had Paul Nitschke was the chief arms negotiator with the Soviet Union for the assault nuclear weapons for years, yeah. was on the committee. The chief chief uh, officer for uh, civil defense in America, uh, CIA liaison officer. And I would set the meeting. You know, I'd set the, he'd tell me what he wanted. I'd write the agenda. I'd contact all these people directly. And then we'd have the meeting at some private location. Oh, huh. uh, You know James Michener? No. The writer said, Sounds was, familiar, yeah. was a very famous writer. He was in our district. Anytime, one time we had a meeting at his home, huh. big, big place. But I used to go to those meetings, and I was just this young guy there, but listening to all these worldwide experts, you know, and huh. their opinions and in private. And I'd write a report up to the uh, congressman when the me- meeting was uh, was finished. Wow. It was just a really interesting experience. Sure. At a young age. Dude, you've you've done it all. <laughs> you've done it all. <laughs> I love it, everything. Yeah. What What is in the future? Do you plan on staying in Korea for a while or retiring here? Or Yeah, i got to retire. I, don't, I have no choice pretty soon. So uh, I'm not exactly sure. I'd like to probably move back to America mm. when I, when I uh, finish uh, my work. And uh, I'm not... You don't want to play Paduk and drink Makali? <laughs> yeah. I, I was... i got to make some money. I was really sick for a long time. I, mm. I didn't work for over a year. And then mm-hmm. hospital bills were just huge my a home I, I bought in uh, Michigan yeah. saved us we had that home so when I left the hospital I hadn't worked you know in a year and I had all these debts personal loans bank loans the hospital bills we sold that house and that basically cleared everything for us but it wiped out years and years Saving. of savings yeah. and what about uh, insurance how how did that like in Korea, it's, the insurance is really different than insurance back home. Um, I don't know if you know the Sulbi, Sulbi insurance hmm. is like if you have Sulbi bomb that covers kind of like everything. If you have basic insurance, yeah, you're only covered for like bare bone stuff. Um, but if you have anything serious and you don't have that Sulbi insurance, you gotta you gotta pay. The insurance helped us a lot. Lots. It was a lot of money, hmm. but we also had so much, we, so much we had to pay. And the thing was, we had to pay as we went. Which my wife had to come up, okay, we need $12,000 on Tuesday for the, the stem cell transfer. Right. Okay, the next week, okay, we got the MRI, that's another 1500 Okay, the bio-clean room that I went into was $2,000 a day for 26 days. Yeah. Insurance pays zero for that. No oh. insurance pays for that. So we had to come up with you know, $50,000 yeah. by this day. So as I'm sick, yeah. you know, my wife is handling most of this for most of the time. Sure. But I owe her a great debt. She is just wonderful. Sounds mm-hmm. like it. Yeah, she was uh, amazing. Uh, Nancy very, very did the rescue, man. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love so, you, so you envision being here a few years and then and then heading home to retire? Yeah, and then maybe head home. Yep. Cool. So, well, Dennis, I'd like to uh, I'd like to have you back. 
oh, again. Yeah, that would uh, I would love to sit down and chat. I think we can go for another couple hours. Or so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like to. I enjoyed it very much. Very good, nice. Good interview. Yeah, so we got some lunch to eat. At the, you okay. Know, yeah. Cool. Sounds, that sounds Anyways, good. Anyways, everyone, thanks for tuning in, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Goodbye.